glad you're with us on this Monday morning. I'm Poppy Harlow with Phil Mattingly in New York. Aaron Burnett live with us again on the ground in Tel Aviv, Israel. And overnight, the Israeli military launching raids on the ground and ramping up those airstrikes on Gaza. The IDF says troops are preparing for the, quote, next phase of the war against Hamas. Take a look at this. This is video of the aftermath this morning. Sources tell CNN the U.S. is urging Israel to delay a ground assault in the hopes of getting more hostages out and humanitarian aid in for the millions of Palestinians who are running out of food and water. But a senior Israeli official tells CNN there will be no ceasefire. The IDF now says 222 people were kidnapped during the Hamas attack and massacre just about two weeks ago. And new this morning, Israel's president is now claiming one of the militants who was killed was carrying instructions on how to make chemical weapons. Let's start with Aaron Burnett in Tel Aviv. Aaron, we've seen escalatory rhetoric. We've seen escalation in terms of both ground operations and airstrikes. What's the latest? All right, well, certainly our teams right along that Gaza border have observed uh, a real increase in activity, but it's spotty, right? You'll see a big increase for a few hours and then a bit calmer. So that's the best way to describe it right now. Our Nick Robertson has been there for the past two weeks, and we're on day 17. Uh, these increased strikes overnight, the IDF just a few moments ago putting out the latest numbers saying that they had 320 strikes, Poppy and Phil, on Gaza uh, overnight. 320 targets, and they specifically say that they hit dunnel, uh, tunnels, I'm sorry, and what they say are dozens of operational command centers. And just to sort of do the math here, that's 320 overnight. Uh, Sunday, they had said they had done uh, more than 200 the day before. So when you look at, say, 500 over a two-day period, you look at the 17 days since this has begun, uh, there has been an incredible incredible number of strikes already on Gaza. They've said they've taken out the chief, for example, of the Rockets Command uh, for Hamas, who was in charge of uh, rockets that have been firing into Israel. So they've taken out quite a bit of the Hamas Command. Uh, but as we say, uh, the, these sort of strikes have been picking up. We'll see, though, during the daylight hours what happens. Aaron, just talk about the significance, if you could, uh, about what Israeli President Isaac Herzog is saying there. The IDF found instructions for a chemical attack on the body of a Hamas operative. CNN hasn't verified it, but what do we know and what would the implication of that be if true? All right, so obviously very significant. I've seen some of the documents. You know, our Matthew Chance had the opportunity to, to obtain a lot of these, and I've seen some of the documents that were on Hamas operatives uh, in Arabic that showed the attack plans for some of the kibbutzim along that border. Incredibly detailed battle plans dated on them about a year uh, for a full year, showing the operational level of planning. This specific uh, chemical weapons uh, claim that the Israeli, the IDF is saying, they're saying they found an, a USB on one of the terrorists that had on it chemical weapons plans of how to instructions on how to make a crude chemical weapon with a drawing uh, that, refu that, that referred to distributing cyanide. They say that this specific plan was from an Al-Qaeda ma manual from 2003. So it's, it, it in a sense shows the, the crudeness of this, right? They didn't have anything new, but when it comes to something like mass cyanide distribution, that isn't something uh, that you necessarily you know, need technological innovation on. So they would say that the significance of this is is obviously notable, but uh, they don't uh, they don't have any evidence that there was anything with this individual that would enable them to do this. Mm. It's just the presence of the plan existed on the USB. And that's the latest we have from the IDF. We have, as you point out, Poppy, haven't confirmed it yeah. ourselves. Aaron, we've spent so much time talking about aid convoys, whether or not they could get through the Rafa crossing. They started to trickle in over the weekend. I believe a third aid convoy just crossed into Gaza a short while ago, but they need much more. What's the latest there? 
Though this is the third day in a row that trucks have gone in. UN had said you need about 100 trucks a day, and we were talking about 14 yesterday. Uh, so obviously, we're not anywhere near the number that are needed. Two important things to note. One, they're doing extra screening. That slows it down to make sure that weapons and fuel aren't going in. Uh, there's been uh, Israel has been adamant that fuel cannot go in because that would be diverted, they say, to Hamas. But we have hospitals in Gaza now saying that they're operating without morphine. So um, you have a dire need. You also have these generators that run the hospital right? They rely on fuel and need fuel coming in. Fuel is so far not part of these humanitarian convoys. So while it's good they're coming in, it certainly does not address in any way the magnitude of the crisis that is is facing Gaza right now. Here, of course, in the early afternoon on this Monday morning. We do understand when we talk about the pace of strikes, Poppy and Phil, 300, as I said, 320 targets overnight. The U.S. government, even with that, has been asking Israel to delay the ground uh, assault on Gaza. This is the latest reporting we have. Basically, the reason is to allow more time for talks that, uh, with Hamas about releasing hostages and that aid into Gaza. Hamas released two Americans on Friday, and there had been hope and speculation, and in fact, clearly discussions going on, hope that there would be more released over the weekend, but there have not been. We understand that there are still 222 hostages uh, being held, and I absolutely think it's important to make the point that we've been told 150, then 199. Now it's gone up even further. That number keeps inching up. And we don't yet know whether that means IDF is getting more intel, but it is important to notice it. Our Natasha Bertrand is live at the Pentagon. And Natasha, you have been reporting on this pressure the U.S. government is exerting. Are they putting a timeline on it? Is it just like, wait, wait, wait every day, wait, wait? Or is there something more specific around this? Well, Aaron, we don't know if there is a specific timeline at this point or if the U.S. is simply telling the Israelis, let's see how all of these negotiations play out to give it a chance to actually work. And we have been told that the Qataris are actually the, the key intermediaries here. They have been talking to Hamas about potentially releasing even more hostages. So that is what the U.S. wants to see. They want to see if before Israel launches a ground incursion, they can secure the release of even more hostages because, of course, there are uh, several Americans who are believed to be uh, being held by Hamas inside Gaza. And the other aspect of this, of course, is the humanitarian aid. The Biden administration wants to uh, uh, see whether more humanitarian aid can flow into southern Gaza before Israel launches that ground incursion and just give that an opportunity uh, to work. Now, of course, it remains unclear how Israel is responding to this behind closed doors. But the fact that they have not yet launched that much anticipated ground incursion does suggest that they are perhaps heeding uh, the U.S. calls here. And Israel, Israeli officials have said publicly that the U.S. has been pressuring them uh, very intensively to allow that humanitarian aid, food, medical supplies to get into Gaza. And so it does seem at this point like that delay is working. Uh, but still, the Israelis are obviously very keen on launching this invasion, something that Israeli officials have said publicly uh, they plan to do. Aaron. Right. And, and of course, um, they you have all those people. I mean, this this country is is known for being an economic juggernaut that has been its entire power uh, to the world. And right now it's not open for business. Uh, that's the reality. And you have so many young, uh, talented, best and brightest on that border. They are not going to work. Schools are not fully open. Uh, it's not functioning here. Uh, so they, they need to make their decision. They feel that acutely. But Natasha, over the weekend, the Defense Department said they were increasing their military presence in the region, more troops ready to deploy, uh, missile defense systems. What have you learned from Pentagon sources? 
Yeah, Aaron, I can tell you that here people are really concerned about the recent escalations that have uh, been observed over the last week or so. Several drone attacks on U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria, as well, of course, as the uh, interception, uh, intercepted missiles that a, U- a, new, a U.S. Navy warship uh, conducted last week off the coast of Yemen. Several missiles intercepted that were launched by Houthis uh, from Yemen towards Israel, according to U.S. officials that appears that that was the trajectory they were taking. And so things are really kind of ramping up across the region. And officials here are very worried that U.S. troops and U.S. forces could be uh, the target of that, as they have been over the last several days. So the U.S. Defense Secretary, he decided to increase uh, the force posture in the region by sending additional air defense systems to try to defend, uh, of course, U.S. troops and bases across the region. Here's what Secretary Austin said over the weekend about why he decided to do this. What we're seeing is a is the prospect of a significant escalation of attacks uh, on our troops and uh, our our people throughout the region. We maintain the right to defend ourselves, um, and we won't hesitate to take the appropriate action. Right now, Aaron, it is unclear just how involved Iran is on these kind of escalations across the region. The U.S. has said that these are Iran-backed proxies who are carrying out these various attacks on U.S. forces and coalition bases there. Uh, But unclear how much Iran is directing this. As with everything else, they're continuing to look at the intelligence and seeing uh, whether Iran has a direct hand in this or not. Natasha Bertrand, thank you very much. And an Israeli-American, we understand this morning, has been killed while serving in the Israeli Defense Forces. The IDF says Omar Balva was a staff sergeant reservist in the Artillery Corps. He was killed, they say, on Friday on the northern border. Israel says by an anti-tank missile fired from Lebanon by the militant group Hezbollah. Balva rushed from his home in Rockville, Maryland, uh, came to Israel after Israel called up more than 300,000 reservists. He was among the first to jump and heed that call. The Jewish day school from which Balva recently graduated called him, and I quote, an unabashed advocate for the state of Israel. Omer was just 22 years old. Overnight, new strikes in Lebanon. Israel says it is targeting Hezbollah terror cells in the north as concerns grow about the fighting on a possible second front. Meanwhile, the U.S. is sending more military assets, including missile defense systems, and putting American troops on prepare to deploy orders. So what more is being done right now to prevent a wider escalation in the region? That's next. Well, new overnight, Israel says it struck what it called a terrorist cell in Lebanese territory. It follows two IDF strikes in Lebanese territory on Sunday. At the same time, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is expressing concern about a wider escalation toward American troops in the area. Let's bring in CNN military analyst and retired Air Force Colonel Cedric Layton. Colonel Layton, thanks for joining us. T- to start with the, the concerns about escalation, we have seen U.S. assets move into the region. We saw the comments from Secretary Austin. How real is this concern right now? Oh, it's pretty real, Phil. Good morning to you. I mean, when you look at uh, the whole region right here, you've got so many different areas that you can actually look at from the standpoint of what 
could potentially harbor possible threats against uh, against U.S. forces. And that includes, uh, of course, Hamas in Gaza, plus uh, forces in Lebanon, Syria, uh, Iraq, Iran even, and of course, down south in Yemen. So all of these areas could potentially harbor places that could affect U.S. troops in the region. And in fact, uh, they've done that because they've gone after uh, targets of U.S. bases that are uh, have been targeted in places like Iraq and Syria. And that, of course, has been a significant uh, aspect to uh, this deployment of U.S. forces, as well as the overall balance of forces in the Middle Eastern region. You know, Colonel Layton, it was striking. Obviously, everyone was struck by what uh, Defense Secretary Austin said yesterday morning to that effect. But also Secretary Blinken on one of the Sunday shows said there's a likelihood of escalation by Iranian proxies directed against our forces, directed against our personnel. So sort of doubling down with a specificity on Iran. And my question about that is the fact that the U.S. has deployed this additional missile defense system to the region. We know that there was the interception of those shot by Houthi rebels in Yemen, Iran backed as well last week. What does this deployment tell you? So what it tells me is that the U.S. is basically getting ready uh, to have a presence in the region, an expanded presence in the region. And the uh, thing, the uh, defense system that you're talking about is this one right here. This is uh, the Terminal High Altitude Area Defense System. Uh, so if you think of this as complementary to the Patriot system mm-hmm. and to other air defense systems that are out there, uh, this is the kind of battery uh, that would actually be used in a, a situation like this. And it fires from a tube-like system right here, multiple uh, launching uh, possibilities here, multiple missiles. And uh, they, of course, are designed to come into an area and take out uh, targets that, uh, you know, that would be out there. So uh, this is what the USS Kearney did uh, when it came to the missiles that were fired uh, from Yemen. And uh, they were able to, of course, knock those out of the sky as well as the drones. So it's basically a force protection measure for the U.S. forces, but it also serves to send a message uh, to any of the forces that are thinking about doing things against the U.S. that we will respond. Colonel, the secretary also talked about the prepare to deploy orders that have been given to additional U.S. troops. What does that mean in practice? So in practice, Phil, what that means is that uh, these forces are being told they need to get ready. Uh, there's heightened tension here in the Middle East. Uh, we are bringing forces in. Uh, we have brought in, for example, uh, the uh, uh, USS uh, Eisenhower, and uh, you've moved that over here. Uh, so we've got uh, two carrier battle groups, one over here, one possibly in the Persian Gulf, depending on which part of uh, the Arabian Air, uh, Sea area and the Persian Gulf that they'd come into. Uh, so what we're doing with a prepared to deployed order, it means get ready. Uh, get your stuff ready, So because when you are given the order to actually deploy, you will have 24 hours to get into theater, and that is what that means for the U.S. forces that have been given that direction. And it also puts everybody else on notice uh, that we're potentially coming in with more forces into places all around the region that would help us protect Israel as well as protect our own national interests. All right, Colonel Cedric Layton, thank you, as always. You bet. Obviously, we are staying on all the latest in Israel's war on Hamas, but also here at home, we still do not have a speaker third week, no speaker. And now nine Republicans are in the running, which, if anyone, is gaining traction. That's ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Potential new candidates for a speaker include Tom Emmer, Kevin Hearn, Jack Bergman, and six more candidates who are clearly George Santos. <laughs> Should not stand for that Gary Palmer erasure. Saturday Night Live poking fun at the House GOP circus to elect a speaker. But senior Republican leaders, including former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, they aren't laughing, calling the chaos, quote, embarrassing. Republicans will meet tonight for a candidate forum to hear from the nine, yes, nine, there's all nine of them, Republicans expressing interest in the job. This will be the House Republican Party's third attempt at rallying behind a candidate after Representative Jim Jordan withdrew following three failed votes on Friday. Joining us now, CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox. Lauren, the Republican majority whip, Tom Emmer, has some big-time support behind him, including McCarthy. Uh, Can he get to 217? Can anyone at this point? Well, that is the question of the week, Phil, and we're going to be covering every moment of this race. Obviously, tonight is very important. It's the first opportunity that candidates are going to have to talk to the broader Republican conference. They're going to meet behind closed doors after 6 p.m. tonight. Then tomorrow at 9 a.m., the voting begins. And this, again, happens behind closed doors. It's a secret ballot. And essentially, because there are nine candidates, expect it's going to take a little bit of time tomorrow. But the expectation is is that someone will emerge with the majority. That person will be the speaker-designee. And then, of course, the hard fight to win on the House floor begins. They can only afford to lose a handful of votes because of the narrow Republican majority. And that has been what has bedeviled every candidate before them, from Steve Scalise to Jim Jordan last week. No one has been able to clinch the necessary 217 votes. Now, Tom Emmer, the Republican whip, certainly starts out with a bit of an advantage. He got the... got an endorsement last week from Kevin McCarthy. Here's what McCarthy said about his deputy whip. This is not a moment in time to play around with learning on the job. We need someone who understands how to do this job. I believe Tom Emmer, our whip, he's been in the room with all of our successes. He sets himself head and shoulders above all those others who want to run. We need to get him elected this week and move on and bring this, not just party together, but focus on what this country needs most. 
And I think one dynamic to keep in mind is that because they are voting by secret ballot tomorrow and because there's going to be vote after vote, the lowest vote getter will drop off the ballot. Then they'll continue voting until someone has a majority. That does create some unpredictability in the room tomorrow. So while Tom Emmer goes in, definitely with a strong advantage, given the fact that he's been in leadership before, it's not clear that some Republican hardliners are going to want anybody who has been in leadership in the past. A lot of Republicans have argued they want a new start. Again, we're going to see, can anyone clinch 217 this week? That is the major question. Lauren Fox, going to be a busy one. Thank you very much. Well, two American hostages released by Hamas. What that means for the others still being held captive. Also, thousands of Palestinian refugees forced from their homes with nowhere to go. Why their relocation from Gaza and the West Bank is being called a red line by the King of Jordan. Overnight, the Israeli military launching raids on the ground, ramping up airstrikes on Gaza. The IDF just about a half an hour ago uh, said there had been more than 300 strikes on targets in Gaza, and they say they are preparing their troops for the next phase of the war against Hamas, which is now on day 17. Sources telling CNN the U.S. is urging Israel to delay a ground assault into Gaza in the hopes of getting more hostages out and humanitarian aid in for the more than 2 million Palestinians who, of course, are short of every necessity, including water. A senior Israeli official tells CNN that there will be, though, no ceasefire. The IDF has now updated their numbers of hostages. That number has gone up yet again. They say that 222 people were kidnapped during the Hamas invasion and massacre two weeks ago. To think about that, when they add just a few, a few numbers to that, goes up by three. That's three families who thought that maybe their child or loved one is dead, who now have hope that they may be returned alive. Each number, an individual human being. And this morning, President Biden, Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau and several European leaders said that they had a chance to speak yesterday, issued a joint statement on Israel's war with Hamas. The White House saying, quote, the leaders reiterated their support for Israel and its right to defend itself against terrorism and called for adherence to international humanitarian law, including the protection of civilians. Also this morning, we are getting a better picture of how desperate the need for aid in Gaza is. So a new CNN analysis shows that Gaza is more than 7,200 truckloads of aid short of what would normally have been delivered since the October 7th attack. Keep in mind, Gaza is completely reliant on aid for its existence. The Hamas government failed to do that. So it's reliant on aid, 7,200 trucks short. Uh, they've gotten in a, a 14 trucks yesterday. That's the context. The U.N. says that Gaza normally receives 455 aid trucks per day. So compare that per day to the 14 uh, that came in in just one 24-hour period over this weekend. So this is a, a crucial analysis of, of, of how dire the situation actually is. Well, the people from Gaza, the catastrophic humanitarian situation, therefore, is deepening. Near-constant bombing has left one hospital overwhelmed, they say, with bodies. They don't have any morphine left. And, of course, fuel supplies are running out. Because of the aid coming in, Israel has said categorically the one thing that is not included in that is fuel, because they say Hamas will uh, take it and siphon it off. Israel's calls for Gaza citizens to evacuate from the north to the south are sparking fears of the displacement of millions of Palestinians. Jordan's King Abdullah calls it a red line that cannot be crossed. Arnetta Bashir joins me now from Amman, Jordan, of course. Uh, so, Netta, why is this such a red line for Jordan, where, of course, refugee camp isn't even an accurate word to use for some of the refugee camps that have been established uh, with Syrian refugees? These are now permanent, permanent homes for millions of refugees. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a country where more than half of the population are either Palestinian or of Palestinian descent. Many of them, of course, came to Jordan as a result of being forcibly expelled or forced to flee their homes following the 1948 Arab-Israeli war or, of course, the 1967 Arab-Israeli war. This is a huge issue here. But what we've been hearing when we speak to people, many of them Palestinian refugees who still have loved ones, family members stuck in Gaza, and they are watching the news desperate to see whether that their loved ones have survived, whether their homes have been impacted in this latest round of airstrikes. But the message that we've been hearing from them is they do not want their loved ones to be forced into becoming refugees. They do not want them to be exiled because they fear this means they will never be able to return. Take a look. Through the narrow streets of Amman's Jabal al-Hussein refugee camp, the mood is clear. No America. No America. Established more than 70 years ago, this community is now home to more than 30,000 Palestinian refugees. Just a fraction of the more than 700,000 who were expelled or forced to flee their homes following the 1948 Arab-Israeli war. Families in this camp know the pain of exile all too well. Denied by Israel their right to return to their homeland, it is a life sentence to separation from family, from friends, from home. And for those with loved ones still in Gaza, they say it is a sentence to the cruelest form of anguish. Are we not human to you because we are Palestinian? At any given moment, I could get a phone call telling me that my sister and her children have been killed. You know, my mother was killed during the Gaza war in 2009. I hadn't seen her for 12 years. Ali Al-Utla says that he has more than 70 relatives in Gaza that have already been killed in this latest round of Israeli airstrikes. Our home is Palestine. We will never forget about Palestine. Imagine being forced out of your home for 75 years. We have already spent 75 years as refugees. How could you expect the Palestinians to leave their homes and move to Egypt or elsewhere? Now, the prospect of thousands more Palestinians being forcibly displaced to neighboring countries or even further afield has been condemned by leaders across the Arab world and has been characterized by both the King of Jordan and other officials as both a war crime and a red line for the country. The Israelis were always adamant about no return of refugees and that's why the Palestinians cling to what they call law of return or the right of return back. So any, any eviction, any uh, 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 new mass of Palestinian refugees for us is a repeat of 1948. That fear of history repeating itself, of another Nakba, or catastrophe as Palestinians describe it, is felt across the region. Many of Hania Saadawi's relatives are trapped in Gaza. Now, Hania spends every morning calling loved ones, hoping they are still alive. I don't even know whether my family is going to be able to go back to their homes, if they're going to have homes to go back to. And of course, the, the biggest fear is that they're going to be um, evacuated and turned into refugees. They don't want to move. They would rather die in Gaza than move. The connection felt by Palestinians to their homeland is hard to overstate. At this church vigil in Amman, a poignant moment of remembrance.
Oh Jerusalem, they sing. A 1960s melody beloved across the region, dedicated to the holy city and to the Palestinian struggle. A cause which has drawn people of all faiths, of all walks of life, together with a message of enduring solidarity. And look, Erin, that solidarity is certainly being felt here in Amman. It is certainly being felt across the Middle East as we continue to see people taking to the streets in protest against Israel's continued aerial bombardment of the Gaza Strip and in protest against the crippling, unfolding humanitarian catastrophe that we are seeing in the Gaza Strip. Nana, thank you very much. From Amman this morning, and the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, says that he's hopeful that Hamas will release more hostages. There were two Americans freed on Friday, of course, as you know. A mother and daughter from Chicago, Judith and Natalie Ra'anan, are said to be safe. They're in good health in Israel, expected to return to the United States uh, very soon, perhaps as soon as tomorrow. Natalie's father telling The Washington Post that his daughter's 18th birthday is tomorrow uh, and that she could be flying back home very soon. Former Navy SEAL commander and the coordinator of the hostage working group at the U.S. Embassy in Iraq, Dan O'Shea, joins us now. Dan, um, here over the weekend, there was a lot of speculation um, and, and, you know, a lot of uh, reporting out there that maybe there were going to be more hostages, right? That those two, first two were sort of breaking the seal. And at least when it came to some foreign nationals that we would have seen a, a few more over the weekend. We didn't see that. Does that signify anything to you? Well, I, listen, right now these hostages, uh, now over 200, 222 as, as your report stated, those are the bargaining chips. That's the, This is the only card that Hamas can play. And obviously, as you noted, uh, the U.S. and other, other countries are putting pressure on uh, Netanyahu and the IDF to slow down this the, the incursion into, um, into Gaza and obviously limit uh, the scale and scope of what the IDF wants to do, which is to root out Hamas and wipe them out. And that's why I don't think we'll see, I, we may see more exchanges, but I don't think they're going to come in, in a flood. I think they'll be dragged out as long as Hamas is trying to, uh, to survive. Why do you think they chose the two individuals they chose? Now, I'm ex not expecting that Secretary Blinken would have come out and given us an answer to that, but, but he said he doesn't know. So if you're going to take him at his word that he's not sure what it is, what do you think the reason is for selecting that mother and daughter from Chicago? Well, it, the obvious is uh, America. We, we, can, we can put the most pressure on Netanyahu and, and the IDF, arguably, because one, we supply a lot of the uh, munitions and, and, and weapon systems and planes. So the U.S. is the most strategic partner for Israel um, for their national defense. So obviously that, that was a no-brainer that the, an American and or, you know, mother-daughter would be released. And uh, again, I don't, I have not seen reporting yet on what the breakdown is. I'm sure there's no, those numbers are out there. But uh, these, these hostages, again, they are going to be used as bargaining chips and, um, you know, the, there, yeah. um, there are other mother-daughter combinations from what we understand. So, um, but, but they, these, these two were chosen, yes. but because they were Americans more than anything else. Absolutely. We and we understand there would be at least eight more Americans, but um, that's just from the numbers that we have thus far. But obviously a very small part uh, overall of the 222, the vast, while there are plenty of foreign nationals, the vast majority, of course, are Israeli. Um, but... We did see, Dan, overnight, yesterday, there was actually the first, the first 
clashes between Hamas and Israeli special forces in Gaza. So when Netanyahu said, soon you're going to see the inside of Gaza, special forces have been in there. We know they were in there at least once, and then a second time yesterday that resulted in a strike, uh, a clash, I'm sorry, and one IDF uh, being killed. What do you think, do you think it's possible that they, I mean, I would imagine they're trying, but what do you think the possibility is of some sort of special forces rescue being successful, given that we do know that they're probably being held underground and in various locations? Well, in my 20-odd years of tracking this, and I spent two years in Iraq uh, uh, dealing with over 400 international kidnapping cases and 40-plus American hostages taken, Gaza presents challenges that we haven't seen anywhere except for maybe Mosul when we had to recapture Mosul after ISIS had taken over the city and had yeah. almost a year to, to put in their defenses. And, and the Hamas has had over 15 years to prepare for an IDF incursion. So this will be challenging on every level because even in Iraq and Afghanistan, we own the air, we own the nights, we had Ford operating bases all over the place. And the fact that this intelligence failure uh, on October 7th shows a glaring weakness in, uh, in, in Mossad and the intelligence organizations within Israel. So we don't necessarily know how much yes. intelligence they have on these tunnel systems or where these hosts are located. That's what will present an amazing, an, an enormous challenge to any rescue force to go in and try and pull up a hostage rescue mission. Absolutely. Well, Dan O'Shea, thank you very much. We all appreciate your time. Phil and Poppy. Aaron, thank you very much for that conversation. We'll get back to you soon. So turning to this, not one but two plea deals from former Trump attorneys in the Georgia election subversion case. And that means they've agreed to testify if called against their co-defendants, which, of course, include former President Trump. Plus, new reports that an Australian billionaire says Trump told him about private phone calls with foreign leaders during his presidency. The details of those conversations, that's ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Well, there are new reports this morning about Donald Trump's handling of potentially sensitive national security information while he was in the Oval Office. According to The New York Times and 60 Minutes Australia, Trump allegedly shared information about his calls with the leaders of Ukraine and Iraq with Australian billionaire Anthony Pratt, who is a member of Mar-a-Lago. Pratt is also a key prosecution witness in Trump's classified documents case. Now, the reports revealed that recordings of Pratt, who gave an interview to special counsel Jack Smith, and in those about Trump's call with Iraqi president, Pratt says, quote, Trump said, I just bombed Iraq today, and the president of Iraq called me up and said, you just leveled my city. And he said, I said to him, OK, what are you going to do about it? He also recalled Trump sharing information about that infamous call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, where Trump pressured him to launch an unfounded corruption probe into Joe Biden, saying, quote, that was nothing compared to what I usually do, Mr. Trump said in Mr. Pratt's recounting. Pratt also offers searing critiques of Trump's personal ethics, saying he, quote, says outrageous things nonstop. 
Meanwhile, Trump is responding to two of his allies who flipped on him, taking plea deals in the Georgia election interference case. Trump tried to distance himself from campaign lawyer Sidney Powell, writing on Truth Social. Ms. Powell was not my attorney and never was. She pleaded guilty to six misdemeanor counts in a deal with the Fulton County DA, Fonnie Willis. Another pro-Trump attorney, Kenneth Chesper, also took a plea deal a day later, pleading guilty to a felony conspiracy charge for his role in trying to overturn the 2020 election. As part of both of their deals, Powell and Chesper have agreed to testify against their co-defendants, including Donald Trump, if they're called. With us now, CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig, former prosecutor in Atlanta, Sarah Flack. Great to have you both, Ellie. I thought this was interesting. So Kenneth Chesper's attorney... Scott Grubman was on CNN over the weekend, asked all about this. Here's part of what he said when he was asked by our colleague if this guilty plea implicates former President Trump. Listen. Admitted his role in preparing documents that at the time he could acknowledge were false documents. He um, admitted to a conspiracy to commit the filing of false documents. But I want to be clear about something. He did not implicate anyone else. And listen, Ken Chesborough is not interested in defending anyone. You know, I, I've read, oh, he's defending Trump. He's not interested in defending Trump, anyone, but he also didn't implicate anyone. He implicated himself. He didn't implicate anyone, but he's not going to defend anyone else. And you can bet he's going to be called. Yeah, he, he did implicate people because he admitted he was part of a conspiracy, which definitionally involves more than one person. In fact, during his in-court colloquy, they named off, the prosecutor named off the other people that the prosecutors believe were part of that conspiracy. Now, it may well be that Chesbro is not able to say, I ever spoke directly with Donald Trump, by, but by saying, yes, there was this conspiracy, there was this agreement between me and others to commit a crime, that does implicate other people. But I do think Sidney Powell is the bigger threat to Donald Trump because we know she had direct contact with Donald Trump. So if I was Trump, I'd be primarily worried about Powell, secondarily worried about Kenneth Chesbrough. You know, Sarah, to that point, do we know specifically what Sidney Powell has agreed to, the implications of that, how this is going to play out going forward? Yeah, so we know that she has pled guilty. We also know that prior to this guilty plea, she proffered with the state of Georgia with Fonnie Willis and her prosecution team. What that means is that she and her attorney met behind closed doors, um, probably had a recorded statement or multiple statements that she gave um, kind of letting them know what all she knew, what documents she had. That proffer was a part of her plea deal. Um, it probably was recorded and it probably will be turned over at some point to Trump and the other remaining defendants down the road. Um, she's also been required to testify at trial. And we also know um, that she's going to have to continue to um, cooperate with the state of Georgia. Um, again, she's going to be the bigger threat for Donald Trump because we know she was at a White House meetings with him in 2020 after the election. We know that she was standing next to him him at a press conference where he is talking about this election. Um, so she is going to be the bigger issue for Donald Trump and probably directly will implicate him in that proffer and in her statement at trial. And in fact, Ellie, if you look at look at this, this is Trump uh, in 2020 announcing his legal team. And he says, I look forward to Giuliani spearheading the legal efforts, et cetera, et cetera. And then he goes on to name a bunch of lawyers. And it includes Sidney Powell, who he calls a truly great team and added other wonderful lawyers and representatives. So now he's saying they're not part of our, she wasn't my lawyer, but he wrote it. Yeah. I mean, he wrote it and he posted it. Well, let, let the distancing begin. We've seen this routine before. This is something 
Donald Trump does anytime someone flips on him. I barely knew the guy. He tried it with Michael Cohen. He tried it with everybody. And by the way, he didn't invent this tactic. Pretty much every powerful person who gets charged with a crime, someone flips, they say, barely knew the guy. To me, the million-dollar question with Sidney Powell is, has she come fully clean? Because it's one thing if she says, it's a good thing for prosecutors if she says, yes, I'm guilty of these misdemeanors I pled to. We accessed the information of voting machines. And also, these statements I made about election fraud, they were lies. We knew they were lies. It was part of the big plan to steal the election. But if she's only going to admit, yes, I was part of this plan to breach the voting equipment, but the statements I made, I had a basis for, and we were still investigating, and there was nothing wrong with that, then she's a very limited really value. Think- that Fonnie Willis would have given her this deal if in the proffer she only went that far. So here's what I would say. If these were the feds, you would only take complete cooperation. State prosecutors tend to differ. What makes me wonder a little bit about the Fonnie Willis deal is she she charged Sidney Powell with racketeering, but took a much, much smaller plea, did not make Sidney Powell plead to racketeering, only made her plead to misdemeanor. So that gives me a little bit of a question here. Sir, to that point, the I don't know her defense aside, what Ellie's saying there, what's your read on what this actually means? I think um, D.A. Fonnie Willis is very smart, particularly when it comes to these RICO charges. I mean, she has built a career on these kinds of charges. Um, And so I don't believe that she would uh, allow her to plead such a central role in Donald Trump's legal team to allow her to plead without a full cooperation. And like I said, I imagine there has probably been multiple meetings where she has gone in detail about what she knew and has provided information, probably even direct communications with Donald Trump. Fonnie Willis would not give a plea deal like this to Sidney Powell without knowing for sure she's going to testify favorably and implicate the president. Thank you very much, Sarah Flack, Ellie Honig. Great to have you both. Thank you. Well, synagogue president in Detroit found stabbed to death just outside her home. What police are saying now about the evidence? Also, the timing of any ground incursion into Gaza is still to be determined. CNN is on the Israel border with an eye on the movement of troops. The question is, where have all the tanks gone? Forward for an incursion or back to base for a pause? Welcome back. Well, the war between Israel and Hamas is also leading to protests and tension here in the United States. More than 300 Jewish activists were arrested on Capitol Hill after demonstrations protesting the war. They're calling on President Biden and others to stop providing aid to Israel, arguing more civilian deaths is not the answer to the conflict in Gaza. Nearly 1,000 people rallied in Brooklyn, New York on Sunday, waving those flags and signs at his home to a large Palestinian community. And two pro-Palestinian demonstrations in Skokie, Illinois, ended Sunday night with at least two people arrested. Also this morning, Detroit police are sharing new details about a synagogue president found stabbed to death Saturday at her home. Officials say as of now, there's no evidence suggesting Samantha Wool's death was motivated by anti-Semitism. At her funeral Sunday, family and friends remembered her push for peace. You are my older sister. You taught me. You protected me. You loved me with all your heart. You so deeply wanted peace for this world. You fought for everyone, regardless of who they were or where they came from. You were the definition of a leader. CNN's Omar Jimenez joins us live from outside Detroit. This was such a jarring attack in its brutality and location. What more can you tell us about the investigation, Omar? 
Yeah, Phil, well, I think from the headline alone, Detroit Synagogue President Foud stabbed to death, it makes people want to jump to conclusions immediately. And that's what Detroit police are cautioning against right now. Specifically, Detroit Police Chief James White emphasized that the investigation into the death of Miss Samantha Wool remains ongoing. At this time, however, no evidence has surfaced suggesting that this crime was motivated by anti-Semitism. But they also didn't include in that statement that they'd ruled it out, highlighting sort of where we are in this investigation and some of the questions that still linger in this community. She was president of the downtown Detroit synagogue behind me, 40 years old. She was found stabbed to death outside of her home. Police followed a trail of blood to her home, which is where they believe this killing took place, but they don't have any suspect, as we understand, at this point, and they are still looking into what led to this killing. Regardless of how it happened, it happened, and those who knew her best remembered her over the course of a memorial on Sunday, all the way from those in the community up to state elected leaders, including Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel, who worked with Wool during Nessel's re-election campaign. Take a listen to what she said. Sam did more for our community, our state, our world, our lives, in her short time here on Earth than most will ever accomplish in a thousand lifetimes over. And her killer will not rob us of the memory of her joy and warmth and kindness that she leaves behind. And another state senator spoke about how she was just with Wool at a wedding the night before her body was found. This community trying to come to grips with what happened as investigators continue to push toward why. Phil, Bobby. All right. Omar Jimenez live for us in Detroit. Keep us posted. Thank you. And CNN This Morning continues right now. Israel's military is ramping up its bombardment of its troops. Clashed with Hamas fighters inside Gaza. We're hunting the commanders, looking for new targets to emerge. The relentless bombing campaign underway in Gaza is cruel and unconscionable. Israel has to do everything it can to make sure this doesn't happen again. We're concerned about potential escalation. We will try to minimize the civilian casualties, but Hamas will do exactly the opposite. There is still some 200-plus people being held hostage. President Biden made multiple calls to world leaders to keep this conflict from widening. Aid will continue to flow into Gaza, a drop in the bucket of what would be needed on a daily basis. Troops on the border waiting for that incursion, they're still not clear when it's going to happen. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Phil Mattingly with Poppy Harlow in New York. Aaron Burnett is live with us in Tel Aviv. Nick Robertson is in Sterod, Israel, near the Gaza border. Overnight, Israeli forces ramping up airstrikes on Gaza and launching raids on the ground. The IDF says troops are preparing for the, quote, next phase of the war against Hamas. This is video of the aftermath of the strikes in Gaza this morning. Sources tell CNN the U.S. is urging Israel to delay its ground assault in the hopes of getting more hostages out and humanitarian aid in for the millions of Palestinians who are running out of food and water. But a senior Israeli official tells CNN there will be no ceasefire. The IDF now says 222 people were kidnapped during Hamas's attack now more than two weeks ago. And new this morning, Israel's president is claiming one of the Hamas militants killed during the invasion was carrying instructions on how to build a chemical weapon with cyanide. CNN has not yet verified that claim. We begin with team coverage this hour across Israel. Aaron Burnett in Tel Aviv starts our coverage off. Aaron, that's quite a claim by President Herzog. What are the implications? Well, the implications, obviously, that significant. Now, let's just 
go through exactly what they say they found, Poppy. They say they found a USB on one of the Hamas militants involved in the attacks. And on that USB, there was information from what had been an Al-Qaeda 2003 operational manual, which included a page of instructions on how to assemble a, a cyanide chemical weapon and how to disperse it with crude drawings. That's what they're saying. They are, however, clear that there was no indications, uh, at least we've received no indication from the Israeli government, that there were any plans to deploy such a weapon. It's just that it was on that USB. But we do know that there were battle plans found on operatives as well. We've seen those ourselves uh, that go through each of the kibbutzim which were attacked, street by street, where every camera was, every generator was, an incredible amount of detailed information. And on those plans, we do know, talking to security at, at at least one kibbutz, that they followed those to the T and went item by item by item. So the significance of the chemical weapons cannot be, uh, you know, we can't miss that. But there is no indication as of yet that there was any plan to use any such weapon. Aaron, the barrage of airstrikes overnight, I believe 320 targets is what the IDF is saying. What are you seeing and hearing this morning? All right, so 320 airstrikes, they give out numbers most days. So just over two days that you're running at a 500 strike over 48 hour period. That gives you a sense of what's happening in Gaza. Now, the, the Palestinian uh, health authority there is saying that, for example, near Rafah, the border crossing, that there were four strikes there in individual homes and that 29 people were killed. That's what they say, impossible to verify. Uh, but it does speak to something both sides are actually agreeing on, even if not explicitly, which is that the Israeli strikes are extremely targeted. Uh, so targeting specific homes where they th believe that there are links to uh, to Hamas uh, militants. Uh, they're also talking about Islamic Jihad. Israel is that they are including Palestinian Islamic Jihad targets as legitimate in Gaza in addition to Hamas themselves. This morning, uh, and we'll get to Nick in a moment to hear more, there have been days where we have heard that assault, even from Tel Aviv. Certainly when we're closer in Ashkelon, we hear the back and forth. You can hear artillery. Here we do hear often the thuds of those bombs. And it has been very quiet today. It has been very quiet yesterday, at least uh, from, from where we're standing at the beginning. Uh, two weeks ago when I was here, it was a constant thud uh, that you could actually physically feel through your body throughout the day. We are not hearing that. Uh, so that is is different. And there are those thousands of troops massed along the border waiting for the green light to go in all up and uh, along that 25 mile long border. Israeli officials, of course, have been warning about this for days. But the question now remains, when exactly it will happen. And we do understand uh, that the prime minister Netanyahu obviously has been presented with many possible operations that he could green light, they could go on. So so we'll see whether this wait indicates a shift in his decision making on what going in entails. Nick Robertson, as Phil said, is in Starot, Israel. And Nick, what are you seeing where you are this morning? Yeah, uh, by far the heaviest amount of airstrikes that we've witnessed here in the past two weeks overnight last night, the late uh, evening hours into the early morning hours, really heavy bombardment shaking this house, the most sustained amount of uh, missiles and artillery that, that we've experienced here. And we've been in, been here for two weeks. Um, and today, as you say, much quieter. Uh, we hear drones in the sky, but no sounds of impacts here in northern Gaza. Uh, and what 
one of the things that we're hearing as well is the reason that the government here is so, Israel, Prime Minister Netanyahu's government, is so concerned about a humanitarian pauses. They think that that will be used by Hamas to gain an advantage, to alleviate some of the pressure that they're facing at the moment, and this pressure designed to help uh, move along hostage releases. Talking to some of the troops who are close to the front here, they talk about, you know, being told to be ready for action and then action not coming and sort of stood up, stood down. But speaking to past veterans of wars here, they say, look, we've been through this here before. We can stay out uh, and do this uh, in the field uh, as long as we like. But when you look at the troops arrayed in the front lines close to Gaza, that's a force waiting to go. Bristling with battle-ready troops, farmers' fields north of Gaza churn with the controlled fury of a nation readying for an incursion to strike Hamas. Yet they are waiting with no explanation why. It feels like the early rush for battle readiness has passed. The troops are deployed, standing by. The question is, how long can they be kept out here? According to former IDF General Israel Ziv, as long as is needed, there are military gains. We are now improving our intelligence and our uh, capacity of targets. But the political calculation here is more complicated. I think both in Washington and in Jerusalem, they understand that the legitimation, legitimization window is closing quickly. Civilian losses in Gaza are growing. More than a third of them children, according to Palestinian health officials. Lengthy negotiations have led to two American hostages released as a tiny amount of humanitarian aid has crossed into Gaza that Israel fears ends up in Hamas's hands. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's calculus of when to send in ground troops has never been so fraught under pressure from the White House for more hostage releases. Netanyahu is in real problem. He, is, he, he cannot say no to Biden, but he cannot say yes to the, to the humanitarian aid that drifts into northern Gaza. But he is also under pressure at home too. Military and others hawkish for a decisive blow against Hamas. We are finishing preparing, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the ground force uh, because we've changed plans. Uh, we are going to uh, for heavy manoeuvring. Netanyahu's dilemma compounded by his dependence on American weapons. The pressure is from Washington is, is real. It's real and strong. And uh, the prime minister says many times to his uh, ministers, listen, we are getting from the United States more than you know. Where less than a week ago, these fields were teeming with tanks, troops making last minute repairs. Today, there are just tracks in the sand. There's a soldier's jacket here, bread in a bag on the table. The question is, where have all the tanks gone? Forward for an incursion or back to base for a pause? 
close to the front line in Gaza these days. More questions than answers. An incursion still highly probable. But when? And while we've just been standing here over the last few minutes, we've heard small arms fire, gunfire coming from uh, this direction over here, which is the direction towards the border. And from here, we can't tell what is actually happening there, but I think it's indicative of the tensions along the border fence at the moment. Nick, absolutely. And, but here's the thing. I know you're saying that troops are telling you they can wait indefinitely, and, and I would expect them you know, you'd expect them to say that regardless of the situation. But this reporting that the U.S. is exerting pressure on Netanyahu to wait, obviously that, that makes a lot of sense. But how long can he wait? And does Netanyahu lose his position of sort of strength and authority by appearing to cave to U.S. interests on the timing of what he does? Um you know, I think that part of the calculus for Prime Minister Netanyahu will be what do his enemies in the region perceive if the United States and the international community is able to tell Israel not to go out after Hamas, then for, for many Israelis, that's going to ultimately look like a sign of weakness. And, and, and the calculus will be, well, what will Hezbollah do knowing that, knowing uh, that, that they are potentially about and have threatened to launch attacks against Israel on that scale if, uh, if the IDF goes into Gaza. So I think that all becomes part of the calculus. The calculus that Israelis themselves genuinely don't feel safe after those barbaric attacks by Hamas uh, more than two weeks ago. All that's part of the calculus. Look, I think it can hold back for a while, but I think everyone's poised. There's an expectation. Um, but, it's, but I think it then becomes a question what precisely is the incursion going to do? Uh, how big will it be? How many civilians yeah. will be in, in the way of that incursion? Um, you know, I think, you know, those, yeah. are, those are the points. But when it comes back to how long can they wait? One veteran of the 1967 war, uh, the Arab-Israeli war back then said, look, we were held out in the desert for, for a month. And what we did was we trained and we practiced. And he said, actually, that worked to our advantage. So I think the psyche here, it's not just soldiers will tell you what they think you want to hear and what their commanders want you to hear. Um, you know, I think the psyche is yeah. what it takes will do. All right, Nick, thank you very much. And Starot Israel tonight, today, sorry. Uh, well, the catastrophic humanitarian situation in Gaza, of course, is, is getting worse because you hear aid going in. Yes, it's important, it's significant, but it, it isn't even a, a, you know, it isn't even a percent of what they, they really need. Uh, hospitals now operating without morphine, uh, generators running out. Uh, this is the situation on the ground in Gaza today. And also coming up on uh, CNN this morning, meanwhile, uh, a Massachusetts couple and their one-year-old son are trapped in Gaza. And we're going to speak to a friend who is desperately trying to get them to safety. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We do have this new video just in this morning. It is children and families running from what Palestinian officials say were intensified airstrikes on Gaza City. The Palestinian Foreign Ministry says a large number of people were killed in the strikes this morning. Also, at least 26 people were killed after Israeli strikes hit a refugee camp in northern Gaza. That's according to Palestinian doctors and officials on the ground there. Meanwhile, U.S. officials say more than 500 Palestinian Americans are believed trapped in Gaza, desperately waiting for a chance to leave. And that includes a Massachusetts couple and their one-year-old son. 
They say that they have tried to cross the border into Egypt four times, but they cannot get in. They say they are sheltering inside a home with 40 other people, sharing food and resources, just trying to stay alive. Joining us now is Sammy Nabolsi, a Boston-based attorney and a close friend of the family. Sammy, thank you for being with us this morning. just want to tell everyone their names as we look at these beautiful pictures of the family. Abud Okal, his wife, Wafa, also their one-year-old son, Yusuf. I know you have been desperate to hear from them. Have you heard from them in the last 24 hours? Yes, I, I did. I did hear from them uh, this morning. Every morning, I try to check in with them and get a status update on what's happening on the ground, how they're doing, how Yusuf is doing. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the one silver lining in all this, of course, is that they're still with us. Can I ask what 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 do they say to you? How dire has it gotten for them? It's extremely dire. It's extremely dire. As, as you noted, they're living in a small single-family home right now, uh, a shelter with 40 other people. They've been sleeping on the floor. They're not sleeping on beds every single night for the last two weeks. And among all of these people, they're sharing an extremely limited supply of food and an even more limited supply of water. Abu told me that a couple of days ago, they'd ran out of clean drinking water. and They had to drink salt water for an entire day. And this is even now becoming more dire because now they're running out of the salt water. So they've asked everyone in the house not to take showers, limit the amount of times they're flushing toilets, not to cook anything that requires the use of water, just so they can try to stay hydrated, um, of all things, using salt water. On top of that, the airstrikes are continuing in Rafah. Abud told me this morning that all night there were airstrikes and bombing in in Rafah, which, by the way, that's presumably, or not just this family, but every other American citizen family that wishes to come back to the United States by crossing into Egypt is currently located. It's extremely dangerous. To that point, what is the latest information they have been given, if any, by the U.S. State Department, by the U.S. government officials about trying to cross at Rafa? What has been almost as frustrating as the, the, the as the fact that the United States has no departure option for any of these 500 to 600 American citizens is is the way in which they've been communicating with all these people. In, in under two weeks, the State Department has by email, text messages, both to me and the family and phone calls, told them to go to the Rafah crossing on a specific day at a specific time to cross into Egypt only for these families to sit there all day for hours and for not a single American citizen to cross. I've been asking the State Department, my contacts at the White House, the family has been doing the same. Neither the embassies in Cairo or Jerusalem nor the State Department are providing any information for what went wrong and what, if any, plan there is for a departure option for anyone or even a timeline to get out of Gaza and into Egypt. And this is particularly concerning given that the airstrikes on Rafah have not stopped and there is a ground invasion into Gaza that's imminent. And there's no one there on the ground to protect the American citizens. Secretary Blinken, to your point, was asked about this over the weekend. And uh, part of what he said, Sammy, is, quote, Hamas has blocked them from leaving. Not specifically your friends, but the 500 plus Americans. Have they have they said anything? Have Abood and Wafa said anything to you about being blocked by Hamas? Yeah, absolutely. And that statement by Secretary Blinken is one of two things. It's either not true or it's wordplay. 
So physically at the crossing, there are no militants. There are no military or government personnel at all on the Palestinian side. Abud sent me videos and pictures of him at the crossing. And literally, the only thing between him and Egypt is a series of gates that are just closed and people cannot cross. So no, there's no evidence that Hamas has been standing at the crossing blocking people from getting in there. The reason why I say it's wordplay is, it word is I asked the State Department. I'm in an email thread with contacts on the White House National Security Council and the State Department, and they told me, they said, we're still working out a three-way agreement between Israel, Egypt, and they said the DFA, which I assume stands for the Department of Foreign Affairs, either under the Palestinian Authority or Hamas, and that they continue to be pressing all three parties for agreement. There just isn't an agreement right now about aid coming in and American citizens getting out. Perhaps what he's referring to is either Hamas is, is making demands or asking for certain things to happen or stop before they're going to sign whatever this global deal is that would permit American citizens to enter into Egypt. Sammy, thank you very, very much for joining us. Obviously, we will continue to pose all of these questions to administration officials as they join us on CNN. All our thoughts with your dear friends. Thank you. Thank you all for telling their story. Appreciate it. Of course. Well, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is supporting President Biden's call for Congress to bundle aid to Israel and Ukraine. But even if Republicans, House Republicans agreed, they can't actually move forward with that plan without a Speaker of the House. And they don't appear to be any closer to finding one. More on that next. The world's on fire. And this is so dangerous what we're doing. And most importantly, it's embarrassing uh, because it empowers and emboldens our adversaries like Chairman Xi, who says, you know, democracy doesn't work. That was Republican Congressman and Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Mike McCall warning his colleagues that a leaderless House weakens the U.S. on the global stage. Future aid to Israel and Ukraine are on the line as House Republicans, well, they're back at square one with still no clear plan on who their next speaker will be. There are now nine Republican candidates for the speakership after Donald Trump ally Jim Jordan withdrew following three failed votes. It has been 20 days since Kevin McCarthy had his gavel taken away. Joining us now, former Republican Congressman Fred Upton and Republican strategist Doug High. Uh, guys, appreciate you being here. Uh, Congressman Upton, to start with you, when you look at this field of nine, uh, you're very familiar with this conference. Who stands out to you and who among them can get 217 votes? Well, I think Tom Emmer's in the pole position. I mean, Kevin McCarthy came out for him uh, very strong yesterday. Uh, he knows everybody. He was chairman, of, the, of course, of the NRCC. Uh, he's a whip, so he's like the highest highest uh, position person in the leadership. There's a couple others that are there as well, uh, but they're all good people. Uh, but the real question is, after they have this vote, and you know they they go, you know, no one's going to get a majority on the first vote uh, on a secret ballot, so the bottom person drops off, and then they'll do it again. It's probably going to go six, seven, maybe even eight ballots uh, among those nine. But the real question will be on Wednesday or so when. They've got to get 217 on the House floor again, and that's going to be the tough trick. And, of course, if they can't, then here we go again, all over again. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mighty rough road. Gentlemen, listen to what Congresswoman Liz Cheney said yesterday. And a bunch of the candidates for speaker, Kevin Hearn, Byron Donalds, Mike Johnson, Jack Bergman, all of them, voted to object to the Electoral College results 
in Arizona and Pennsylvania and to disenfranchise millions of Americans based on those lies. Is that disqualifying? Certainly. I think there's no question. And I think it tells you, though, you know, uh, over 140 members of the House Republican Conference voted to object and voted to object after the violence. But, Doug, I'll ask you the same thing that Jake asked Congresswoman Cheney, and that is, given that fact, that number in the conference, it didn't vote to certify the 2020 election, does it actually hurt someone like Tom Emmer or Austin Scott, who did vote to certify it? Well, ultimately, it was one of the reasons uh, that Jim Jordan didn't become speaker. He had a problem with one of the holdouts there on that specific issue. The conference clearly is, is where Donald Trump is on this. And we know that if Donald Trump wants to play a role here, uh, he can. He's not the determiner. But we know that Donald Trump can make waves uh, in a very significant way for Republicans, as he has for years. It's a reminder not only of why we need more Fred Uptons in Congress, I wish he were still there, uh, but also of why Republicans have proactively divided themselves amongst each other. And we saw that play out over the past few weeks with Kevin versus Steve and Steve versus Jim and all of this. When Phil covered Capitol Hill on a day-to-day basis, a lot of what was reported was the Eric Cantor versus John Boehner uh, world going on. I worked for, for Eric Cantor at the time, and most of that was, frankly, stupid and malicious staffing. It wasn't a member-on-member thing. In this case, it's very real with members. They all have food in their hands, and they're ready to throw it. Uh, Congressman, I don't feel like you wish you were still back on Capitol Hill at this <laughs> Get point. The words out of my mouth. <laughs> but uh, my, uh, the question I, I've had... I want you to know that my wife is watching, and she's got a fork in her hand that she's going to come after <laughs> <you> shortly. <laughs> I, I don't think you're that sadistic. I, I've wondered, though, throughout this yeah, entire process, no, no. Beyond, beyond the circus itself, is, is this going to have a longer-term impact? Uh, you're in a state in Michigan, one that, that can go back and forth and has shown... To that to be the case since 2016. But there's also a number of House races in your state uh, that could be very tight depending on how a, a national election goes. Do you feel like people are watching this and actually factoring it in? Well, to answer your question, and I'll expand on it in a second, the answer is yes. Uh, but the other thing I just want to quickly say is that Donald Trump's engaged in this again. He's actively opposing Tom Emmer because of his vote to certify the elections in both Pennsylvania as well as Arizona. But let's face it, as you said, this is day 20. We're the world's afire. We can't pick a speaker when we have a Republican majority. We can't get our folks together. This is going to have a big impact on the elections uh, next year as people are just going to walk away from the, uh, yeah. the Republican Party uh, because it, it's a clown car. They can't govern. Uh, that's not what they want. They don't care if you have an R or a D next to your name. They want you to do the job. And right now with Israel, Ukraine, potential shutdown again coming up in just a couple of weeks, nothing has happened. This, this is ludicrous. It's exactly the question I was going to ask you, Doug, is what price will Republicans pay for this? I was in an Uber in Kentucky over the weekend, and the Uber driver who'd served decades in the military First thing he said to me, and he didn't know I was a journalist yet, he said, can you believe what is happening with Republicans in the House? It's the first thing. Yeah, look, we very proactively made our brand a very bad one 
uh, throughout the country. And our only benefit right now is Joe Biden's numbers uh, are also in the cellar as well. And Poppy, I'll tell you, the last meeting I had in the House of Representatives uh, before everything shut down for COVID was with Fred Upton and his Democratic colleague, Debbie Dingell. They're great friends. They're both great members of Congress or were in Congressman Upton's case. That's how things should work. And that's not how things have worked in Congress for, for a while now. Uh, obviously, th- we're seeing that right now. And we see so often in, in professional wrestling battle royals, the question is, who's the last man standing? We could go through this process with no one standing and a stalemate that continues not just through this CR and with the shutdown, as the congressman mentions, looming, but also more long term throughout the rest of this conference. We are in a completely unknown zone and we really just don't know what the answers are yet. Yeah. Well, wow, with November 17th, the deadline around the corner to keep the government open. Fred, your wife can put the fork down. <laughs> Confident. Thank you. So, Kai, appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thank you. So overnight, the Israeli military ramping up airstrikes on Gaza, once again calling on civilians to evacuate south, just as a third convoy of aid trucks heads toward that border. Why some rights groups say it is not nearly enough. Welcome back. I'm Aaron Burnett, live in Tel Aviv, of course, along with Phil and Poppy. And we are just getting some news in when we talk about the 320 airstrike Israel launched overnight in Gaza about exactly how they are dealing with precision targeting. News that there is a new weapon that Israel is actually using in this fight that they have first deployed during this now 17-day war and deploying it nearly a dozen times. Uh, their Magellan Commando Unit in charge of using this a certain type of mortar or bomb. I want to get to Nick Robertson, Starod Israel. Uh, Nick, this is new information into CNN about what exactly Israel is doing. What have you learned about this weapon and this unit that we understand is called the Magellan Commando Unit? Yeah, a specialist unit using a new weapon, a specialist new weapon, steel sling, um, steel sting. This is a weapon that really advances technologically the old-fashioned mortar. The old-fashioned mortar is sort of a close infantry tool. You can use it close to the front line or a little further back. It fires really high in the air, goes right up and comes right down. Now, typically in the past, if you're using the old-fashioned version, you need a forward spotter who can see where it's hitting and it takes maybe three rounds for a good mortar team to put a round precisely on a target. This new system apparently does away with that entirely. It is computer controlled. You dial in the designated location of the target uh, and this mortar fires and hits that target with pinpoint accuracy. That's what the IDF is saying. So what does this mean? It means when they see a small uh, Hamas or Palestinian, Palestinian Islamic Jihad unit out in the field with a with an anti-tank weapon, the sort of thing that was used yesterday to kill an IDF soldier. They can pinpoint them precisely and hit them quickly and readily. Now, we weren't aware of this being operational in the region, and we've become used to here the explosions, the detonations, missiles uh, and artillery. But this had a whole new sound. And when we first heard this weapon firing off, we ducked for cover because it literally made this huge whoosh and went right over us. And we didn't know what it was. We did uh, hear it impact, see it impact. So this is something the IDF really hopes can help it target precisely small groups. And, And Nick, it's interesting that you're saying you can actually by audio here that it's very different, that your actual physical reaction, your adrenaline reaction would be different. Obviously very significant because you've been standing there the whole time. And of course, in Ukraine, you hear artillery are used to all of these sounds. Um, 
Just some context here, though, Phil. 320 strikes overnight. They said 205, I think, the day before yesterday. So I'm just putting it out here to make a point. That's more than 500 strikes in any given 48 period. And they've been running around that rate, right? Even the Palestinian Health Authority is not saying that there's anywhere near that many number of deaths a day. So it just I, I, I'm making this point to make uh, a use of the word precision. That, that they are incredibly precise. And in fact, it seems like in some cases they're actually targeted at operation command centers, not necessarily at individual Hamas operatives, right? But at structural or infrastructural points, right? Absolutely. Uh, thank you, Aaron. We'll get back to you very, very soon. And with us now, editor and foreign affairs columnist at Bloomberg, Bobby Ghosh, and former foreign policy advisor to the Bush administration, Mitt Romney, and the co-author of a new book coming up, The Genius of Israel, Dan Sino with us. Thank you, gentlemen, both for being here very much. I actually want to begin with what we heard from the King of Jordan, Dan, over the weekend. This is an, a, a U.S. ally, but he was emphatic, obviously choosing his words carefully and sending a message. Here he was. The relentless bombing campaign underway in Gaza, as we speak, is cruel and unconscionable on every level. It is collective punishment of a besieged and helpless people. It is a flagrant violations of international humanitarian law. It is a war crime. To hear that, coupled with our reporting that the U.S. is urging Israel to pause, mm -hmm. to wait, to try to allow more time to get hostages out. What, and, and, the, and the IDF says there is no ceasefire, there is no pause. Yeah. What is your read? So I think there are two things going on. When you hear leaders in the region making those statements, I think they're very concerned about the Arab street getting hot, particularly the King of Jordan, who's worried about real volatility in his own population in Jordan, and whether or not the tensions between Israel and Gaza, Israel and Hamas, could have you know, cascading effects for his own security of his own power. But leaders, most of the leaders in the Arab world, are quietly saying, I hope Israel wipes out Hamas once and for all. So what they're saying publicly and what they're saying privately are two different things, particularly when you look into the Persian Gulf, the Sunni Gulf, they're hoping that Hamas is wiped okay, out. The question is the cost, right? I mean, we, this, we heard Queen Rania, his wife, who's Palestinian, yeah. really concerned as well about the treatment of the Palestinian people and all of I, this. I, I, look, I think there are legitimate concerns about the Palestinian civilians. The question is who's responsible for that? Who can ultimately control their fate? Is it Israel or is it Hamas? The U.S. administration's agenda is different. I believe the Biden administration has minor, mild hope that they're going to get out some of the hostages, particularly the hostages with American passports. We saw two released last week. I think Hamas is playing a very clever game where they're starting to dribble out hostages. I think you'll see more of that over, over the next few days. And so the Biden administration is saying, wait, if we're going to start getting out a couple of hostages here and there every couple of days, there's a family I'm meeting with today. Hirsch Goldberg, Poland, is a hostage who's here. I think he's been on CNN. Yeah. And um, his parents are here today uh, meeting at the U.N. Security Council. So a lot of these parents are organized as well they should be. And the Biden administration is saying, give it time. This puts Israel in a real conundrum because they can wait and they can wait and they can wait. At some point is the concern that will undermine their own future operation. And if all that's released at the end of it are hostages, except for those that are just Israeli passports. Bobby, Dan gets at the complexity here, which as I've spent a lot of time trying to get my head around it. And while I am certainly not a foreign affairs expert or foreign policy expert, I've covered a lot of this stuff for long enough to know that this is very different given how many cross-cutting variables they seem to be. You talk about the leaders in the region who might be saying something publicly for effect, saying something differently. You see the U.S. wants hostages out, but is also moving in uh, significant force uh, posture 
increases for deterrence purposes, also potentially getting drawn into something bigger, uh, while also trying to hug Israel and its leaders, uh, who they know are eventually going to launch a ground incursion. How does this all move forward in the weeks ahead, given what Dan is talking about, the hostages, where the Israelis are, a ground incursion, all these elements? It moves forward very, very, very slowly until the ground offensive takes place, and then it moves very quickly. So uh, that's that's the nature of these things. You know, things happen slowly until they suddenly happen very, very quickly. The triggering event now will be the ground invasion. Until then, there'll be all, all this diplomacy going around it. There'll be more, depending on how long this continues, the, the sort of, um, depending how, mu- how much time Israel takes to launch the ground offensive. I imagine there'll be more gatherings of regional leaders. Um, you know, Secretary Blinken will be on the road virtually all the time, trying to get the, the herd all these cats together. Right. There will be a lot of negotiations behind the scenes involving the Qataris for those hostages, and there will be lots of conversations between the White House and uh, the Netanyahu. When you say triggering, I mean, my big question, what does triggering mean? What does it trigger? And that's obviously the big concern when you talk to U.S. officials. Well, the calculation as to when the ground offensive begins will be made by the Israelis, and, and they will consider all kinds of factors, including the pressure from the United States. But as Dan pointed out, they need to move in before too long. There's a a time limit on how much they can wait. Um, There there is a momentum. We keep thinking of the pressure that's being put on Netanyahu from the outside. We're we're not paying enough attention to the pressure from within, from Israelis. And and your correspondents on the ground will, will know this better than Aaron will know and Nick, that Israelis want to see something done. We're, we're now two weeks away from the horrific events that began this chain of occurrences. And those events are still fresh in the minds of Israelis. They still want a reckoning for what happened on the 7th of October. They still want to make sure that that never happens again. There's a lot of pressure on Netanyahu to, to follow through on his promises, to go in and finish Hamas once and for all. We can discuss around this table whether that's even possible, but... We must not discount the, the strength of feeling in Israel and the impact that feeling has on Netanyahu's, um, on, on his disposition towards Gaza. And to the point earlier about what leaders say in public and what they say behind closed doors, I think it's really interesting that CNN's reporting is now the Biden administration has pressed Israel to delay that ground invasion to try to get more hostages out. But it's not something we've heard publicly from the president, except for what his team says, was a misunderstanding of him saying yes to a question over the weekend. Do you think there comes a point when that is something that the president says out loud? Uh, No. I think the president's approach so far has been to give the Israeli government and the Israeli people a big bear hug in public, say, I have your back. I think what he did, as we talked about last week, was very dramatic by showing up in Israel, meeting with the war cabinet. So very forward leaning and and uh, sort of attach at the hip message publicly and privately comparing conveying these messages i do not believe ever. he will start i don't know about ever i can't say ever but in the near term i don't think he's going to pressure israel uh because the deterrent effect that that would wipe out if the u.s government is publicly in the president's voice pressuring israel the message that would send to hezbollah the message it would send to mm. iran would be disastrous bobby dan thanks guys appreciate it Well, as Israel fights back against Hamas, it needs more than just soldiers to win its war. One Israeli-American nurse says she can't just sit back and watch. She's going there to help save lives. She's also aware of the danger. CNN's Camila Bernal has the story. 
This is the beginning of an uncertain and potentially dangerous journey and a way of coping. Reminded me how I felt on 9-11 when I was a child and that hopelessness and not understanding what was going on. And I was like, never again. And this is really never again. 27-year-old Kinnerit Levine is leaving everything behind. Her calling, volunteering her time as a medic in Israel. I've made my peace with whatever happens. I've already made it because as an American, this is my sense of justice against terrorism, against the value, my American values. As a Jewish person, my heart is bleeding. And as an Israeli, I'm ready to, to give my all. Los Angeles was her last stop before her flight to Israel. Are you ready to see that? I don't think anyone truly is ready or truly is prepared, but it's a conscious decision that I have made and I will stick through it. The organization Bulletproof Israel helped place Levine at a hospital in Israel. They're working to help Americans who want to travel to Israel while also sending large quantities of supplies. None of us are taking a salary. We're just doing everything we can to help our friends in Israel, to help our friends that have been victimized. And they've been told the hospitals are in need. We're seeing a lot of medical supplies that are necessary right now. Levine hopes her time will make a difference. This is doing my part and this is my values and who I am as a person and who I am as a nurse and a medical professional. She says as long as she's alive, she will be helping. There is no regret. Regret is not the feeling. There is fear. And she says she'll use that fear as motivation. She landed safely and told me, I will come back home. Now, I also talked to a number of other organizations, including Yala Indivisible. They help Palestinians in Gaza. And what they're telling me is that they can't help in a way that they want to. Sending someone there or sending supplies is not an option for them. They're trying to raise money, trying to get political attention. But overall, it's just Americans who feel like they have to do something, Phil. All right, Camila Bernal, great reporting. Thank you. So negotiations between the actors union SAG-AFTRA, Hollywood Studios, are going to begin, resume again tomorrow, in yet another effort to end this crippling strike that began on July 14th. The two sides last met October 11th. The talks broke down after the Alliance of Motion Pictures and television producers said the gap was too great. Actors also returned to the picket lines last week amid union President Fran Drescher's calls for those negotiations to resume immediately. SAG-AFTRA wants wage increases, protections for using actor images through AI, more compensation for streaming programs and improvements to health and retirement benefits. The Writers Guild ended its strike on September 27th. That one lasted about five months. Well, the U.S. is sending more military assets to the Middle East, including missile defense systems, and putting American troops on prepared-to-deploy orders. Coming up, Republican presidential candidate Mike Pence joins us. We'll ask him about the U.S. response to Israel's war with Hamas. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Israel has not only the right, as we've said, but the obligation uh, to defend itself. Um, we're not in the business of second-guessing what, uh, what they're doing. We can give our best advice, our best judgment, again, about how they do it and also how best to achieve the results that they're seeking. 
So that was Secretary of State Antony Blinken yesterday uh, trying to answer a question on whether the U.S. wants Israel to delay a ground assault until more hostages are freed. Not a direct answer there. Two sources, though, on the other hand, tell CNN the Biden administration is pressing Israel to do just that, to wait. A senior Israeli official tells CNN there will be, quote, no ceasefire, though, in Gaza. Joining us now to discuss that and a lot more, former vice president of the United States, current Republican presidential candidate, Mike Pence. Mr. Vice President, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you, Bobby. Let's begin with that, with our reporting from multiple sources to CNN that, yes, the Biden administration behind closed doors is urging Israel to wait, to wait, give an opportunity for more hostages to be released before launching a ground assault. Do you agree with that approach? Well, I, I think all of our leaders from the president on down need to speak with one voice, that America stands with Israel, and we will stand with Israel to do what needs to be done, which is nothing less than crossing that border, hunting down, and destroying Hamas once and for all. I mean, the, the reality is, after that horrific attack, the, the most the most brutal assault on, on the Jewish people since the Holocaust, Poppy. Uh, Israel has no choice uh, but, to, but to destroy Hamas. Uh, and and I, I believe that uh, in public and in private, uh, the president of the United States should be expressing nothing different than that. We, we've got to learn the lessons of history, Poppy. And okay. uh, the lessons of history are that peace comes through strength, and that when America withdraws, when America sounds a message of, of retreat, the world becomes more dangerous. So just for clarity, are you saying you disagree with the Biden administration urging Israel to wait at all right now? You would not do that as president. If I was president of the United States, I would make sure there was no daylight between us and, and the leadership uh, in the state of Israel. We, we, we need to make it clear that we are there to support them, to stand beside them, to send a message to the wider region uh, by, the, by the presence of American military force in the eastern Mediterranean, two air, aircraft carrier battle groups, that, uh, that if Hezbollah makes a move to make it a, a wider war, if Iran tries to make this a wider war, uh, if, if Syrian uh, forces or terrorists from Syria, that the United States is prepared to engage. We, we just need to give Israel room to do what needs to be done. I mean, the reality is that uh, after October 7th, uh, the world has come to realize Israel knows, America knows, uh, Hamas and Israel cannot coexist. Israel must prevail in that fight, and we must send them that message. And, and uh, you know, this is a very momentous day, too, Poppy, because 40 years ago today, 241 Marines were lost to a terrorist attack in Beirut. It was almost personal in our family. My brother was a Marine assigned in Beirut. His battalion shipped out 10 days before that attack. It was the worst single-day loss of Marines since Iwo Jima. Uh, and sadly, the Reagan administration made the decision after that terrorist attack to withdraw American forces. Uh, Osama bin Laden would write later that that American retreat uh, emboldened him to believe that violence against Americans could drive American forces out of the region. It literally set the stage for 9-11. We, we can't signal restraint. We can't signal retreat in this moment. Uh, we've got to make it clear that America stands with Israel and, and we're going to stand strong for our interests in the region. And there is a difference, an important one, 
between re- retreat and pause. And you bring up 9-11. And this, you know, has been referred to many times over as Israel's 9-11. I would love your reaction to what General Stanley McChrystal told our Jake Tapper. This was back in 2021. And Jake reminded us all of it on his show yesterday in terms of reflecting on what he wished America had done at that moment. Here he was. I've thought about it a lot. Right after the 9-11 attacks, I would have made a decision inside the U.S. government to do nothing substantive for a year. What I mean by nothing, no bombing, no strikes, etc. I would have gone around the world as the aggrieved party and built up a firm coalition for what ought we do about Al-Qaeda. I would have done a mass effort to train Americans in Arabic, Pashto, Urdu, Dari, to get ourselves ready to do something that we knew would be very, very difficult. You were in Congress, of course, uh, at that time, and you Mm -hmm. voted for authorization of the Iraq war. Looking back now, do you share some of his reflections that perhaps a pause, not a retreat, a pause by Israel in this moment in terms of a ground invasion would be prudent? No, I think, uh, quite honestly, I I, I want to respect Israel's right uh, to take time to do the early bombardment, to set military assets in place. But I, I, uh, I, I find uh, General McChrystal's comments to be incomprehensible. The idea that after September 11th, that we should have waited a year uh, to respond. We, we, we made it clear to the Taliban in Afghanistan that they would give up al-Qaeda or we would come at them. We said, we said you're either with us or you're with the terrorists. And, and American forces uh, hunted down and destroyed al-Qaeda. We, we displaced the Taliban. And for 20 years, up until Joe Biden's disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, it was American okay. forces well, there, American forces around the world that kept us safe Mr. from another major terrorist event on our soil. Mr. So, no, I, I, think, I think we've got to stand strong. I think we've got to make it clear that there will be a price to be paid. I go back to that 40 years ago lesson, Poppy. It was 40 years ago today, 241 Marines. When we signaled American retreat, it was okay. Osama bin Laden himself who I, would write. That emboldened him to set, I, uh, set the, into motion the efforts that led to 9-11. We've got to meet this moment with American strength, and we've got to stand without qualification by Israel as they do what needs to be done to hunt down uh, and destroy Hamas. I want to move on to the hostages being held. Before I do, uh, President Biden carrying out an agreement to withdraw U.S. troops from, from Afghanistan that was made during the Trump-Pence term presidency. Look, you said yesterday, Mr. Vice President, that you think the U.S. Well, should... but it, it wasn't carried out the I, way we I were to carry it out. Time, I want time to ask you about the hostages because yeah, you care a lot about this, well, Mr. Vice President. Well, he changed the deal you and said, it turned into a disastrous withdrawal. But we can talk about that again in the future. And we will have you back. But you said and reiterated yesterday that you think the U.S. should send in special forces to free American hostages being held. This is what John yeah. Kirby from the White House said. This was October 12th about that. Israelis have uh, made it very clear that, that they don't want foreign troops uh, on their soil, that they want to prosecute these operations on their own, and they have every right to want to do that. There is no intention, no plan, and frankly, no desire by the Israelis for U.S. combat troops to be involved in this conflict. Despite that, if you were president, would you send in U.S. special forces, despite Israel reiterating to the White House that is not what they want to try to bring hostages home? 
Well, let me be clear. Whatever we would do, we would do in conjunction with Israeli defense forces and also special forces uh, in Israel. But look, we're talking about American hostages being yeah. held by bloodthirsty terrorists in Hamas. And if I was president of the United States, I, I would have directed American special operations, Delta Force, Navy SEALs, to stand up and to be prepared to go in. And then I would have made it very clear to Hamas, you either turn those American hostages loose and the Israeli hostages loose, or we're going to come and get them. We have the greatest hostage rescue teams in the world. Uh, and and I, I think this business of, of waiting while Hamas decides the timetable, going hand in hand to Qatar to negotiate the release of hostages, we, we ought to just make it very, very clear that we are not going to tolerate uh, them uh, detaining American hostages. Uh, we, d we don't ask permission uh, to send American forces in to save yeah. Americans. Right. But you were also saying that you would work hand in hand with the Israeli government and, and what they want. Finally, on this aid package put, for put forward by the Biden administration, uh, it's as you know, $61 billion for Ukraine, $14 billion for Israel. You've got money for humanitarian aid, also bolstering the defense of Taiwan, and $14 billion for the U.S. border. I know you largely have been supportive of this, maybe quibble with some of the numbers, but there are a lot of Republicans in Congress who are not supportive of it, and I wonder what you say to them. Well, I would say to them that following that disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, by President Joe Biden— uh, that cost the lives of 13 American service members and, and really weakened America's credibility on the world stage. And after two years of appeasement by the Biden administration uh, of, of Iran, we, we've got to recognize that, that uh, the weakness of this administration has emboldened the enemies of freedom around the world. Wars raging in Eastern Europe and now war in the Middle East. Uh, we continue to see China menace in the Asia Pacific. We, we've got to meet this moment with American strength. We're the right. leader of the free world. But We're the arsenal of democracy. I would tell my old colleagues, it's, it's time. Let Congress work its will. Let them crunch the numbers. For heaven's sakes, let's get resources to secure the southern border of the United States as well. But this is the time for American leadership and American strength. And that's and the pathway uh, toward peace uh, around the world right. and among our allies. And those are all things included in this uh, package uh, proposed by the Biden administration. Come back soon, former Vice President Mike Pence. Thank you. Thank you, Poppy. CNN This Morning continues now. And it is the top of the hour. I'm Poppy Harlow with Phil Mattingly in New York. Aaron Burnett live in Tel Aviv overnight. Israeli forces ramping up airstrikes on Gaza, launching raids on the ground. The IDF says troops are gearing up for, quote, the next phase of the war with Hamas. And a senior Israeli official tells CNN there will be no ceasefire. This is new video this morning of the aftermath in Gaza City. Palestinian officials are claiming the intense bombardment has killed at least 436 people, including more than 180 children. The Israeli military says it struck hundreds of targets, including the underground tunnel network used by Hamas fighters. And new this morning, Israel's president says one of the Hamas fighters killed during the attack on Israel more than two weeks ago was carrying instructions on how to build a chemical weapon with cyanide. CNN has not verified the claim. Let's go straight to Aaron Burnett, live in Tel Aviv. Aaron, so much is moving right now, as has been the case for almost two weeks now. What's happening on the ground? 
right. Well, on the ground, our Nick Robertson has uh, reported, obviously, overnight, uh, you could absolutely experience, he was he witnessed uh, and can verify an increase in the Israeli strikes, more than 300 of them, as you said. Uh, also, we're finding out that Israel has made its first operational use of a new type of weapon. It, weapon. It's a precision munition. It's a mortar bomb uh, that they have used for precision targeting, tunnel targeting. Uh, and we understand they've used about 10 of them over the past 17 days since this war began. Uh, and this, this new weapon, as, as our Nick Robertson was reporting, actually even sounds very different uh, than, than what we're accustomed to hearing uh, along front lines uh, like the one that has already, uh, has already started along the border with Gaza. So that's the latest that we understand now. But more than 300 targets overnight, those were targeting command centers, those were targeting uh, individual Hamas operatives, of course, and also tunnels. And, you know, the, 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 right now I will say it's, it's, it's quiet. It is the middle of the day. It is the heat of the day. Not usually the loudest time. It is quiet today. The question is it whether it will be the quiet before the next storm or not, Bobby. What about what Israeli President Isaac Herzog has said, that they found, I believe, a USB drive on one of the Hamas militants who was killed in the attack uh, that had some sort of instructions for a chemical attack uh, using cyanide? Mm -hmm. What specifically was found? I know CNN hasn't independently verified it yet, but what does it tell us? All right, so it's a USB, and on it they found a page from an al-Qaeda operational manual back from 2003. Interesting, of course, the Israelis are making the argument that this shows that it is one continuum from al-Qaeda to ISIS, now to Hamas. It, this is an operational manual with a page with a crude drawing of a cyanide distribution method for a chemical weapon from a 2003 manual. No evidence presented that there was any intent to actually use such a weapon by the Hamas operatives. But I will say, Phil and Poppy, uh, reading through some of the documents that were found on these Hamas operatives, what they did have that they used was incredibly specific and accurate, detailed and tested over time. Battle plans that they'd worked on for at least a full year since October 2022 with plans to attack uh, individual kibbutz along that border that were incredibly detailed. And they did follow those exactly to a T. Uh, volunteer defenders in one of those kibbutz literally going through reading it. It said, do this and then this and go to this street and go to that. And they said that is exactly what they did. So some of the documents found on the Hamas operatives, they did follow to the T. Others, like this chemical weapons, may just have been something that was on a USB in someone's pocket. Unclear if it's any more than that. But Israelis are saying that they found that as well. Aaron, thank you very much for the reporting. We'll get back to you very soon. Well, as the Israeli war effort is escalating and a ground operation into Gaza seems imminent, there are conflicting stories this morning about whether the U.S. is calling for an actual delay. Two sources briefed on the discussions tell CNN that the Biden administration has pressed Israel to hold off its invasion of Gaza to allow for more time to release uh, hostages held by Hamas and for more aid to reach Gaza. But a senior Israeli official denied the U.S. is seeking any delay, telling CNN, quote, we deny this report. We have a close dialogue and consultations with the U.S. administration. The U.S. is not pressing Israel in regards to the ground operation. Here's how President Biden responded over the weekend. Are you encouraging the Israelis to delay Joining me now from the White House is National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic uh, Communications, John Kirby. Admiral, appreciate your time. Uh, my sense is there's some space in between. Uh, there's a, some gray area here to some degree, which is why I want to ask this question. Does the administration believe that once a ground incursion is launched, the window to get hostages released closes? 
Uh, look, I think without not getting ahead of Israeli military operations and whether there will or will not be a ground incursion, it kind of depends on what they do uh, and the manner in which it's executed. And since the beginning of this conflict, Phil, we've been talking to the Israeli, uh, our Israeli counterparts about their plans, their intentions, their strategy. Uh, we've been asking them for what, how they're answering the tough questions that any military is going to have to do before you you go on and conduct uh, major operations. And, and that's and that's what we're doing now. I mean, uh, but obviously, look the. Israeli defense forces, they make these decisions for themselves. They have to defend their own people uh, on their sovereign soil. And, uh, and of course, they're going to have to they're going to have to make those decisions. Now, I understand that. But if the administration's interest in particular is with 10 Americans that are currently missing, a majority of which are expected or are believed to be hostages. Do you believe that whenever the, quote, next phase, as the Israelis have framed it, of this operation commences, the window closes to get those Americans released through negotiations? Again, I think it would depend on what operations we're talking about, how they execute them. I will tell you that nothing has changed about our focus on those hostages. We're glad we got two uh, back home with their families where they belong. Uh, last week, we want to get the rest of them out. Um, and that, you know, that you, you've got to have you got to have the ability uh, to continue to negotiate and, and, and try to work towards that outcome. So we absolutely uh, want to make that happen. Admiral, I want to ask you something that the, about the president, what he said on Air Force One. He was asked about, you know, discussions that have been happening. I'm not going to ask you about the military operations, but, but take a listen to this. We had a long talk about that and what alternatives there are. Our military is talking with their military about what the alternatives are, but I'm not going to go into that either. What, what are the alternatives? Everybody's been talking so, I think, definitively about a ground incursion. Um, there's an right. assumption there. It has not been confirmed. It is just an assumption. Clearly, there's been a buildup. What, what alternatives are there right now? Anytime you conduct a military operation, you, you plan for what we call branches and sequels, different ways of executing that mission and contingencies in case plan A doesn't work and you got to go to plan B. And what the president's talking about there is exactly what I've just been saying. Since the beginning, we've been in touch with our Israeli counterparts uh, about their thinking, about their planning. And of course, we have a little experience at this too. And, and I think we've been willing to share some of that experience uh, with the Israelis in terms of branches and sequels and thinking about the contingencies and what the backup plans might be. You would expect us to do that. We're very, very close friends. Uh, the Secretary of Defense said this weekend there's a prospect of significant escalation. You guys have talked about the concerns about escalation, the efforts toward deterrence. Uh, there have obviously been shots back and forth between Iranian proxies. Has there been any sign that the type of escalation uh, the administration has been concerned about has started? Well, we have seen some worrisome attacks, and we got to do what we got to do to protect our troops uh, on the ground, particularly uh, in Iraq and Syria. You've seen us add additional military capability uh, to the region. Uh, we are watching this very, very closely. Uh, so I don't want to get ahead of where we are, but right now uh, we don't see an indication that a major player is willing to escalate in a major way. That said, I don't want to diminish uh, the kinds of attacks that we have seen in the last few days on our troops. Uh, Admiral, I want to ask you something. We had. Uh a gentleman who's friends with, close friends with uh, a couple who has a child that are currently near the Rafah crossing. They have been there for several days now. And we mm. asked him about what Secretary Blinken said over the weekend uh, that was basically that Hamas has been blocking American citizens from crossing the Rafah crossing. Um, we asked him about that statement. This is what he said. And that statement by Secretary Blinken is one of two things. It's either not true or it's wordplay. So physically at the crossing, there are no militants. There are no military or government personnel at all on the Palestinian side. Abud sent me videos and pictures of him at the crossing and literally 
The only thing between him and Egypt is a series of gates that are just closed. There just isn't an agreement right now about aid coming in and American citizens getting out. Admiral, to that point, we, we talk a lot about the hostages. There are several hundred uh, American citizens that are currently in Gaza. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To the point made by Sammy there, what is the disconnect right now? When will they be allowed out? I wish I could tell you, uh, date certain, time certain. We want to get them out. We want to make sure that they have safe pa passage out. And we are working very, very hard, both with the Israelis and with the Egyptians, to get to that outcome. Right now, of course, you've seen some humanitarian assistance flow in, but we have not forgotten the plight uh, of those hundreds of Americans that are on the other side of that Rafa crossing. We know they want to get home or get out, and we want to help them get out, and we are working on that very, very hard. You've been working on that very, very hard for several days now. They have oftentimes gotten messages yeah. about specific windows yeah. when they could leave that fell apart. Is there any sense that working will end up with an outcome soon? Uh, that's, that's what we're working towards, Phil. I, I wish I could tell you for sure, but, but this is hard stuff. Uh, and if it was easy, they would have been out, you know, on October 8th. But it, it's hard stuff to get done. And, that, and that's why our diplomats are on the ground. Ambassador Satterfield specifically uh, appointed for this purpose to get aid in and to get uh, people out, Americans out. He's working on this literally every single hour of every single day. Again, I wish it was easy. I wish we could just flip a switch and have, and have that gate open and all those folks get out. But uh, that's just not the reality on the ground. Understood. Last one before I let you go. In the president's primetime address, he talked about uh, the aid he's seeking for Ukraine and how much of that aid is to uh, basically refill American stockpiles. Uh, right. My question is the state of those stockpiles right now, the state of uh, where U.S. weapons stockpiles stand with two wars sending now two different types of shipments on a regular basis towards two U.S. allies. Uh, how big is the concern that the U.S. is dangerously low on what it should have for its own defense right now? Well, of course, it's a concern. That's why we asked for that extra supplemental funding from, from Congress. Uh, without getting into classified information, I can assure you and the American people that the United States military can continue to defend uh, our national security interests uh, all around the world. But it's something that we watch very, very closely. And with every single aid package that goes to Ukraine and now Israel, uh, the Department of Defense has to do an assessment to make sure that we can continue to meet our own war plans, our own operational needs. And we're doing that. We've also revitalized the defense industry to create, to manufacture, manufacture and produce much more of these munitions so that we can, A, keep them going to Ukraine and Israel, but also, B, replenish those stocks. But it is important, and that's exactly why the president asked for that supplemental funding. All right. Admiral John Kirby, the National Security Council. Appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. You bet. Thank you. Well, the humanitarian crisis is getting worse by the hour in Gaza. Officials are warning hospitals are overwhelmed. There's an acute shortage of food and fuel. Clarissa Ward takes a close look at the dire situation inside those hospitals. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Gaza's catastrophic humanitarian crisis deepening this morning. And some of the images that we are going to show you are disturbing. Uh, this is just a look at how dire the situation has become. Uh, some parents in Gaza apparently are writing their children's names on their legs to help identify them if they are killed. It is just as hard to see what the children go through who do survive. Uh, this is a journalist in Gaza who was traveling to the scene of a strike. Here's what he said. Listen for yourself. Heading to the place that got striked, and just people gave me these two babies. They are injured by the bombing. I just see them 
A Gaza neonatal doctor warns that infants on ventilators won't survive if the electricity is interrupted. Doctors also say uh, that yesterday was a bloody day. The Israeli airstrikes intensified. Israel said that themselves. Uh, doctors say 166 bodies arrived at the hospital. Of course, none of these numbers are possible to verify independently. Meanwhile, they're forced to treat pa patients right now. They don't have morphine, so not even a painkiller uh, for the surgeries that are, that are desperately needed. Kids with burns are suffering with no painkillers. This is a healthcare system, obviously, uh, that has completely collapsed. Doctors are, are toiling against the clock and against everything to try to keep uh, keep people alive. Our Clarissa Ward is live in Cairo, Egypt, with more. And Clarissa, you were at the Rafa border crossing, where now there are a few trucks of aid going in, nothing like what is needed, but a few. But one of the things you were talking about explicitly was how fuel was not allowed, so that there would be water, there could be medicine, things like that, but no fuel, because Israel says that Hamas would siphon that off and take that for their own purposes. But... Clarissa, what does this mean for hospitals who, you know, when you run through your generator fuel, then you really don't have any backup electricity even to keep those ventilators or anything else going. So what do we even know about the dire nature of the fuel crisis for hospitals? Well, I think you, you, you seized on the right word there, Aaron. dire. It's gone from critical to dire. Israel has turned off the electricity in the Gaza Strip. That means that all of these hospitals are dependent upon generators. Those generators are dependent on fuel, and fuel is not getting in. Israel has blocked it. They say it could be taken by Hamas. But as a result, you have this kind of diplomatic impasse, how to get that fuel in, how to satisfy Israel's concerns. So far, no one's been able to resolve it. We're talking about 34 trucks worth of aid that have gone through that border into Gaza in the last couple of days. Just to give you some perspective, Aaron, in a normal 16-day period, more than 7,000 trucks full of aid would have gone through into Gaza. And now this is all happening against the backdrop of relentless bombardment, many civi civilian casualties. We spoke to one doctor in the Al-Shifa hospital in northern Gaza. Take a look what he had to say. You are entering the Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza City. This is just one minute on one day. But doctors tell us it could be any minute of the last 16 days. It is a scene from hell. Many of the patients are young children. The reception area, now a triage center. And everywhere you turn, another casualty. Every one of these people has been ordered by Israel's military to evacuate the hospital, including the staff, already outnumbered and overwhelmed. And as the punishing bombardment continues, the wounded keep flooding in. Doctors say there's nowhere else for them to go and no safe way to transport them out. We had the massacre, the mass casualties once or twice a day, but now we have every half an hour casualties. So it, it is overloaded. Our emergency department and our OT department and our IBD department are overloaded with the patients. Dr. Marwan Abu Sada warns that the situation is about to get dramatically worse. The hospital, he says, is just two days away from running out of fuel, needed to power the generators that are keeping the hospital and its patients alive. If you do run out of fuel 
in two days. What will you do? I mean, what can you do? I think the international community will be part of the process of killing of our people. If they don't act on Israel to allow to get this fuel into enter Gaza, what to do for the people who are in the ICU and mechanical ventilator? What about the neonatal, neonates, the small babies? We have more than 130 in our neonatal ICU units. What to do with them? They will, okay, we, it is, I think we are allowing them to die in peace. This is the issue if we don't have a fuel to run our generators in the hospital. Just a trickle of aid has been allowed to cross into Gaza, and none of it fuel. Blocked by Israel, it says over concerns it will be taken by Hamas. Hundreds of trucks are waiting along the Egyptian side of the border. But diplomatic efforts to establish a continuous humanitarian corridor have failed, and there is no more time for debate. Now, Aaron, another important point to make is that the trickle of aid that has got into Gaza has not reached northern Gaza, has not reached that Al-Shifa hospital. Dr. Abu Sada said they haven't seen any of the medical supplies that have been going inside Gaza. This is just another problem, another obstacle to be overcome. And meanwhile, a lot of frustration, particularly uh, in the Arab world, certainly here in Egypt from the government. They say they desperately want to make this happen, but there is just a complete standoff over this issue of the fuel. Obviously, Israel has been very vocal about its concerns about getting the fuel, but we are now firmly on the precipice of what is very clearly a life or death situation, Aaron. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, Israelis say there is now electricity in Gaza. But when we look at those shots in the night, it is incredibly dark. Poppy and Phil, back to you. All right. Thanks, Aaron. We'll get back to you soon. We want to bring in CNN chief international anchor Christiana Mampour, who joins us live from London. Uh, there's the humanitarian crisis, Christiana, and then there's kind of the broader geopolitical on the verge of crisis, if not already there. You have so much experience in the region. The way regional actors are operating right now, how close is kind of that line that U.S. officials are very clearly concerned about right now. So, guys, the internationals who support, uh, you know, Hamas, Hezbollah, all the rest of it, and the regional powers are looking at precisely that humanitarian catastrophe unfolding in Gaza as part of their publicly stated reasons for potentially getting involved. And just to add, you know, the fuel means that there's no water either. Humanitarian organizations, the UN told me just last week that most Gazans have to rely on bottled water because they have salinated water naturally occurring and without fuel they cannot operate the desalination process so it's about water too I mean this is the basic of survival because people can live longer without food than without water this is causing Hezbollah Iran the others to say unless this quote-unquote war crime this this uh, this humanitarian catastrophe is not relieved not to mention um, the massive deaths amongst civilians including according to Gaza um, health ministry uh, some 1,900 children, then in Iran's words, the situation risks spinning out of control. And you can see there has been more intensive, uh, I'm going to say skirmishes now, uh, but engagements uh, on the northern Israeli border between Hamas and, and, and the IDF. 
Christian, you have so much experience reporting on Hamas and its rise to power. I mean, especially in 2009, right after the Israel-Hamas war in December of 2008. Can you tell us a bit about that and how it informs where Hamas is now? So, yes, I started going, you know, in the Hamas era in 2006 when they won that election that the U.S. had insisted on at that time. The administration of George W. Bush had insisted on an election, believing that their war in Iraq meant that democracy was going to, you know, take over the Middle East uh, via Baghdad. Well, it didn't happen. And despite what the Israeli government and what the Palestinian Authority said, that don't have these elections because Hamas will win in Gaza, they did go ahead and have the elections. And of course, Hamas won. At that time, uh, I went in in 2006, and then again during, just after the last, you know, the latest war, 2008-2009. Uh, Hamas was moving from having been mostly, mostly, according to the people, a social organization. It was becoming more and more militant, more and more involved in, quote-unquote, the resistance, um, and, and becoming very, very militant in that way. But what I did notice, and which I think is a cautionary tale, is I visited the homes of, of Palestinians in Gaza City and around that, you know, heavily, always heavily bombarded North Gaza, and went to civilians' homes. There was a little boy who I always remember, Hamza, five years old, who his parents showed me what had happened to to their house in the latest Israeli campaign. And this is a cautionary tale about what happens when people are constantly subjected to this kind of violence and how they and where they put their faith and their, you know, their, their politics, even as a kid, for the future. Just, just watch this a little bit, an excerpt. Since this latest round of war, teachers have noticed not just sadness, but anger. Hamza, Hamza hits a boy with the ball that we've given him. When an adult tells him to share, he makes an extraordinary threat. He wants to bring in the Hamas militia. For him, they are the strongest authority. Oh my God. They tell me their home was hit by missiles, twice. It's so frightened their 90-year-old grandmother that she now spends her days sitting outside in the dust. Unprompted, Hamza launches into a tour of his devastated home, complete with sound effects. So you see what happens, and we spoke to a very respected uh, psychologist at the time in Gaza who said they have no more faith in their parents, they can't defend them, they have no faith in society, not their teachers, just in what they're told is their defender, and that is Hamas in this case. And so these generations, and that was in 2009, he's nearly 20 now, young Hamza, where is he today? This is a very cautionary tale, and you can see it in, even in U.S. Uh, expeditions in whether it's in Iraq, in, in Afghanistan and elsewhere. It, the, the, the tendency to radicalize people who have nowhere else to turn. At such a young age as well. Christian, thank you. I'm so glad you brought us back to that moment. Well, sources tell CNN the United States is indeed pressuring Israel to delay its planned ground invasion of Gaza in hopes of getting more hostages out. 
But a senior Israeli official tells CNN there will be, quote, no ceasefire in Gaza. We will be joined by a man who says five of his family members were taken by Hamas in the initial attack on October 7th. Welcome back. Sources tell CNN the United States is pressing Israel to delay its planned invasion of Gaza in hopes of getting the hostages out. But a senior Israeli official says there will be, quote, no ceasefire. On Friday, Hamas released two American hostages being held, and there was hope more would be freed. That has not happened yet. Earlier this morning, a cousin of the freed Americans told ABC News the work has just begun. We cannot put it aside. We cannot rest. This is... Getting Judith and Natalie back was not the end. It's the beginning. There are so many others. We don't know why them. So it's, for me, lucky and guilty. Our next guest, Dory Roberts, is one of those enduring this agonizing wait. He says he has been, quote, walking a thin line between madness and sanity because five of his family members were taken by Hamas. Five. His aunt, who was later found dead along the Gaza border, her longtime partner, his cousin, and her two little daughters. The New York Post putting the two girls recently on the front page. Roberts, who lives in Texas, says he thinks endlessly, what are they going through every minute of the day? And he had to discover the truth of what happened that day through a TikTok video. A TikTok video showing Hamas militants capturing his family members. Dory joins me now. Dory, good morning. I'm sorry it does not begin to express uh, appropriately, but I, I am, and we are so sorry for your loss and your now angst and grief over what could be of your other family members. Can you talk about what you describe as walking that line between madness and sanity, what that's like? Good morning, Poppy. Thank you so much for having me on the show this morning, and thank you for your amazing coverage so far. It's been over two weeks. Um, there's no about five of my members. We found out last week that my aunt have been announced dead and found along the border with the Gaza. Uh, I still have a half cousin who is in that community. We have not heard from him as well. He's still missing. His name is Ravid Katz. Um, and it's been really challenging times for all of us, for family, for nation, um, for Jewish people around the world. Uh, just yesterday, I talked to my community in Los Angeles via Zoom, and we talked about all that grief and how challenging those times are for us as a nation. Um, the fact that we're still looking for any kind of uh, relief, any kind of news, are they well, are they not well, um, are they still alive? It is a day-to-day, -day, it's an hour-by-hour -hour struggle. It's not easy, not for me, not for my family, not for anybody out there who have a missing and kidnap people by the Hamas. Uh, we just don't know anything. As you speak, we're showing um, pictures of your beautiful family, including those two beautiful little girls, two and, and four years old. I wonder how you balance the grief of the loss of your aunt, Ephra Katz, and then perhaps a little bit of hope because there were two hostages that were released on Friday. Right. Yes. Thank you, Poppy. We are... Uh, Definitely tried to keep the hope. Just yesterday, we celebrate um, Doron's um, sister, Lior. Uh, she was in many news outlets throughout uh, these two weeks, and uh, we celebrate her birthday. We're trying to keep them up. We try to wrap them up with love and show them that there is still hope. 
it's so hard. It is devastating every day to go through those motions. Um, and we all parents, we all have partners and, and wives and husbands need to, uh, to be taken care of. Um, so walking that thin line between um, madness to hope is yeah. very real to us in a way. Every day, every part of the day is, is, is around us. We definitely can feel it, the, the heartache, the, the heavy hearted to everybody and try to fall into hope to the little things. Um, sending my kid just now to school, giving them a big hug, promise them that I will be there when, when they get out of school and try to hang on to those daily things to, to remain humane, to remain mm-hmm. uh, um, sane for those times, uh, to be in touch with my family, to be in touch with my communities here in Austin and around the U.S. Uh, while I do my mission and be here with, with the news and keep this story and their faces up and hoping for their release as, as soon as possible by the Hamas. And we, yes, we are demanding that uh, and we are still help from other governments, from the administration to help us and bring them back home. Not everybody were uh, as lucky as the two uh, American hostages that were released. I'm very thankful that they are back in safety. We want the same for everybody else. Uh, we want that for our families and we want that to everybody that is held by the Hamas. So we can stop this war right now and go back to uh, recovery and go back to um, grief and mourning and, and bury our deads. Um, the news keeps coming back. It's not good. Tori, I wonder how you think about the new reporting that CNN has that the Biden administration is behind closed doors urging Israel to pause, to wait on a ground invasion of Gaza in the hopes that more hostages can come home. Is that something you hope to see? I hope to see that. Absolutely. I think like this is a a tremendous amount of effort from the administration uh, alongside with other players in the in the scene. I think uh, our family are in intense and constant contact with the Germany government. Um, Since uh, three of them are actually dual citizenship with Germany and we are in touch with them right now to do the, some, exactly the same, to apply the pressure, mm-hmm. to influence the leadership of the Hamas to the immediate return. Hopefully, other country will join the effort and we will be able to see results as soon as possible. And if that will, will bring an end to this war, the release, immediate release of all the hostages, absolutely. We do not want to see any more civilian, uh, innocent people getting hurt on either side of the border. Dory Roberts, thank you very, very much. If you hear anything, please let us know. We are all hoping for you. Thank you so much, Poppy. Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell is supporting President Biden's call for Congress to bundle aid to Israel and Ukraine. But even if House Republicans agree, and that's a big if, they can't move forward without a speaker. And they don't appear to be any closer to finding one. We'll have more on that next. Reporting this morning about Donald Trump's handling of potentially sensitive national security information while he was president, according to The New York Times in 60 Minutes Australia. Trump allegedly shared information about his calls with the leaders of Ukraine and Iraq with an Australian billionaire named Anthony Pratt, who is a member of Mar-a-Lago. Pratt is also a key prosecution witness in Trump's classified documents probe. He gave an interview to the special counsel, Jack Smith. CNN's affiliate in Australia, Nine News, obtained what they claim are secret recordings of Pratt speaking about Trump 
Here's what he allegedly said about a conversation Trump had with Iraq's president. Well, I hadn't even heard it. It hadn't even been on the news yet. He said, I just bombed Iraq today. And the president of Iraq called me up and said, you just leveled my city. And he said, and I said to him, OK, what are you going to do about it? And he also recalled Trump sharing information about that infamous call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, where Trump pressured Zelensky to launch an unfounded corruption probe of Joe Biden. Trump said, uh, you know, that Ukraine phone call, that was nothing compared to what I usually do. And he said, that Ukraine phone call, that's nothing compared to what we usually talk about. Brad also offered some searing critiques of Trump's personal ethics, saying he, quote, says outrageous things nonstop. Well, former Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy urging House Republicans to finally select his successor. This is not a time to play games. This is, a, this is embarrassing for the Republican Party. It's embarrassing for the nation. And we need to look at one another and solve the problem. Good news. They will get another chance this evening to try and solve the now nearly three-week-long embarrassing, Kevin McCarthy and many other people's words, not mine, issue that they're dealing with. Jim Jordan, he is out. This time around, they'll be looking at nine Republicans who are vying for the gavel. This evening, those candidates are expected to make their pitches to their Republican colleagues in a candidate forum before an expected closed-door vote tomorrow. CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox joins us now, live from Capitol Hill. Uh, Lauren, I, I got to be honest, I'm looking at this list of nine. I don't see anybody that gets 217. That's the number they're going to need to become speaker. So where do we go from here? <laughs> yeah, the rigmarole that's going to unfold over the next several days on Capitol Hill, a lot of viewers are probably very used to at this point, given the fact that it is the third week without a House speaker, and it is going to be their third attempt in a closed-door room to try and get a speaker designee who can get the votes that they need on the floor, that magic number of 217. What you can expect is that tonight there will be a candidate forum. It is the first opportunity for those nine Republicans to make their pitch to their colleagues as to why they think that they should get the speaker's gavel. Tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., the voting begins. It will be behind closed doors first. This is an opportunity for Republicans to choose their speaker designee. There have already been two times that they have chosen both Steve Scalise, then Jim Jordan in that closed door room. After they emerged, though, neither one of those candidates were able to clinch the votes that they needed to become the actual speaker. So the next two days are going to be this process to try to find that person. And while Representative Tom Emmer, who's the Republican whip, is certainly probably the front runner, given the fact that he has the endorsement of Kevin McCarthy, given the reality that he has experience in leadership, there is a thirst and a hunger from a lot of hardliners that they do not want to see the status quo continue. That likely means they're going to be looking and have their eye on someone else, perhaps Byron Donalds or another one of the hardline Republicans who are running, hoping that they can get the 217 they need on the floor. Again, it is such a difficult margin because you can only afford to lose a handful of Republican members, just about four members, Phil. Lauren Fox, thank you very much. I wish I could say this is almost over for you, but I don't think it is. Well, the catastrophic humanitarian situation in Gaza, it is getting far worse. The near constant bombing has left one hospital, quote, overwhelmed with bodies, low on electricity, and has forced its doctors to operate without morphine. look at this new video just into CNN. It shows the sheer devastation of Israeli airstrikes in central Gaza. Israel says 320 terror targets were struck in Gaza overnight, including tunnels 
and command centers, centers belonging to Hamas and Islamic Jihad. The Palestinian Health Ministry says 436 people, that includes 182 children, were killed in the strikes. Joining us now, foreign policy analyst Rula Jabal. Thank you for being here very much. Um, King Abdullah of Jordan spoke about this over the weekend. He went as far as to call what Israel is doing in Gaza uh, a war crime. And then he said this, listen. Our lives matter less than other lives. The application of international law is optional. And human rights have boundaries. They stop at borders. They stop at races. And they stop at religions. He says that in the context of the United States repeatedly saying over the past two weeks how Israel does this matters. And now are reporting that the U.S. government, the Biden administration, is urging Netanyahu and the Israeli government to pause before a ground invasion. How crucial that a U.S. ally like King Abdullah said that over the weekend? I think it's, it's very important. And, uh, and the message is not only to the Israelis, but to the American administration to pressure the Israelis to care for civilian lives, to distinguish between civilians and militants. And what we're seeing, because they're seeing things that in America we're not seeing, the unfolding of humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza. Before the war, 50% of people in Gaza had basically food shortages. They didn't have access to adequate food. 90% didn't have access to clean water. Now we're seeing a catastrophe that is unfolding, that I think in Palestinian history, they remember it in 1967. In the Middle East, they connected to the humanitarian catastrophe that took place in Yemen. Gaza is a small strip of land. You have two million people. So to starve two million people, which is a war crime, what they call it out as a war crime, uh, they're seeing people that are, especially children, I mean, 1,800 died. They see children consuming water that's unfit for human consumption. They're seeing people basically being operated without any anesthesia. But also they are seeing real starvation. And 20 trucks, you know, of humanitarian is nothing. What they need is 7,000 now, yesterday. And I'm reading even stories where hospitals that are becoming morgues, basically, are becoming graveyards. And all of this is happening while Israelis flag and tell the region, we're going to wipe out Gaza. So the region is very worried because if they seen as complicit in what's happening, that what Israelis, even scholars, Jewish Israeli scholars, go on television, denounce these policies, and they said, this is what Israel is doing is a textbook definition of genocide. These are Israeli scholars. So when you hear the region, they, are, they're, they don't want to see be complicit to basically to the destruction of the Palestinian people. But there are lines to what they will do to help to some degree, right? Yeah. You're not seeing, Jordan's king has made very clear, King Abdullah, there will be no refugees into Jordan. Egypt's, uh, El-Sisi has said pretty much the same exact thing. And there are layers to that uh, in terms of their people and what they oversee uh, in terms of the countries themselves. But why are those, why do those lines exist? Well, this is the fact. Jordan has already 60% of its population that is Palestinians. Right. They took refugees from Syria, millions, and from Iraq. So they pay the consequences of both Israeli actions and American actions. Egypt is 100 million people. It's the poorest country in the Middle East. They didn't trigger this. They've been asking the administration, we are willing to take some, but with one condition, that they would be allowed to return. And Israel is now refusing. I mean, what Israel is suggesting 
to those countries, but also to the Palestinians, we would basically expel you, millions probably, and this is a definition of ethnic cleansing. If you are allowing refugees to exit, but never to enter to the land they belong to, you're basically creating a massive refugee crisis. So a country that is already paying the prices of other refugee crises. So the only alternative that they're trying to ask the administration, pressure Israel to create basically a place where if you really care about human life and the sanctity of human life and international law as well, Israel is the ultimate power that can determine what, what to do with you know, refugees, maybe movement, if they really care, move them somewhere else, but guarantee that they would come back home. If they really care about distinction between Hamas, which is 30,000 or 40,000, but there's 2 million people. So if you decide that to sacrifice 2 million people, then become, this become a catastrophe and will drag America to another war. All right, we appreciate you coming in, as always. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for joining us this morning. We'll see you right back here tomorrow. CNN News Central is next. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.